Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. This is episode 282. We're getting really close to 300. Uh, yeah, exciting stuff. Some of those voices you heard right there, we have Trainer Road in Cannondale's Amber Pierce. Hi, everybody. And Trainer Road in Cliff Bar Racing's Pete Morris. How's it going, guys? And we have a new guest with us this week, a trainer road employee. Uh, so, and, and, and once pro cyclist as well, it's going to be awesome. You get to meet more people behind the scenes here at trainer road, Ivy Audrain. How you doing Ivy? Hey, I'm super good. Thanks Jonathan. Yeah. Happy to have you. So, okay. Let, let's intro you really quick to, to give some people some background. I mentioned that you are a pro cyclist. Can you kind of tell us your, your experience with like racing, like, like what you've raced, where you've raced that sort of a stuff. Yeah. So I've been racing for, I think this is my, what would have been my 12th season, RIP COVID. (laughs) Uh, And (laughs) I started out racing road and raced professionally for a few years in that. And um, now I dabble in XC and single speed cycle cross is my favorite discipline to race right now. Um, Yeah. Awesome. So we're stoked to have you. Uh, If anybody has ever been on like the forum or uh, a lot of the time on Instagram or on Twitter, that sort of stuff. Ivy is our community manager. So she's amazing at that. And a lot of the time you'll, you'll recognize her quick wit that she has when she <laughs> responds to your stuff. <laughs> so, um, I, before we get into things this week, we have a ton of questions that we're going to answer, by the way, it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of conversational stuff today, and probably a lot of opportunity for us to, to, to laugh about some stuff too. So, uh, but first things first, the successful athletes podcast last week, we had an episode published with Justin Brayton and he's a professional supercross racer for Honda. So a very different from, from what we normally cover. And it was a super interesting one. We talked about periodization, tons of stuff. So check that out. It's getting rave reviews so far. People are loving that one. Also last week when we talked about getting more submissions from women, we got more of them. Thank you so much. That was awesome. So you can do that at trainerroadcom slash podcast. You'll go there. There's a little bar on the page for you to click to the successful athletes podcast, and you can submit through a form right there. Your story of how trainer road has helped you achieve some level of success. And just to reinforce this, once again, you don't have to be like some sort of race winner. You definitely don't have to be like Amber, uh, having raced as a pro domestique or Pete, you know, winning breakaways and crits, that sort of stuff. So you can just uh, success as Pete said, there are many different ways, uh, different measures of success. So, uh, whatever you, if you're proud of yourself for something, which you totally should be, by the way, uh, for what you've done with trainer road, then, uh, let us know about it. Cause at the very least, even if you don't end up wanting to be on the podcast, just share it with us. Cause it's really cool to read them and to share them with the company. And that always makes everybody excited. So, uh, good stuff there. And then also next week we have an episode with a professional triathlete coming on. Uh, so Sika Henry, and she's, if anybody knows about her, you should look her up first of all, but amazing. we're also going to have her as a, yes, amazing athlete, incredible runner, gone triathlete. And she's been super transparent and sharing everything that she's learned through that. So we'll get into that on the successful athletes podcast next week, but also she's going to join us on the ask a cycling coach podcast next week as a guest host, which is super exciting. So with all that said, let's get into some questions. Uh, first thing here from Michael, this one actually isn't even a question. I'm just throwing this in just because I like it. He says, this isn't a question. I just want to say that whenever races get to happen again, please make more of the strategy videos for the races you enter. I've been working my way through your catalog of videos on YouTube and the strategy and analysis videos from earlier in the year are fantastic. I love the podcast and the workouts and I'm seeing results, even though life keeps getting in the way of my rides. Thanks for all you do and keep up the good work. So good job, Michael, for pushing through, even though life gets in the way. 
And uh, good job, Pete and Amber, on those race analysis videos that we have. They're awesome. <laughs> They're really fun. I can't, <clears throat> I can't wait to do more. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you high five there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch on YouTube and you would have seen our high five if you watched. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, Pete, we, we were talking about this. We have some ideas just in case racing doesn't happen next year. Yes. Uh, we're in tenuous we're in a tenuous state now in the world. Who knows what happens with racing? And, and obviously they're much larger fish to fry, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, for right now and bigger things that merit our focus for sure. If racing does happen, clearly we will have race analysis coming. If racing doesn't happen, we also have some other ideas. So yeah. Amber and I be fun. put our heads together and we have, we have a good backup plan in case racing doesn't happen. And it's probably a concurrent plan that will still knock out at some point, even if racing does happen. So it's really exciting. This one's a good Super one. Super cool stuff. If yeah. we do say and so we've even talked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? <laughs> the floor is ours, Amber. <laughs> so, and, uh, another thing along these lines too, We I've been talking with Nate about doing some sort of MTB video analysis that we could do in a safe way and be able to do some cool stuff there, <clears throat> possibly involve some pro athletes with that analysis too, to get their, their wise eye looking at what we're doing and kind of pointing out what we can do better. Hopefully that can help us with everything from road to cyclocross to mountain biking, all the different disciplines, uh, even triathlon. So, uh, so we have plans to do more. So stay tuned for that. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe and you can <laughs> check it out. We have videos that are posted all the time and a whole playlist full of race analysis videos, even full races. So if you wanted something to watch, so you can BYOE, bring your own entertainment <laughs> when you train. <clears throat> You can uh, put that up and then use the Trainer Road app there on your Mac or PC or put it up on the Apple TV, something like that. And you can even watch the full races if you want to get some entertainment. Just listen to them on mute because you never know what will be shouted out in the middle of a bike race. So um, (laughs) if you have kids in the room. (laughs) Okay, Andrew's question. He says, I live in Melbourne, Australia, and after a summer of smoke and brush from brush fires, which stopped me riding due to asthma and then a broken ankle from bushwalking, which uh, AKA hiking for all of us here in, in the U S at least, uh, in May, what a rough year, um, for, for Andrew. And then of course, pandemic lockdown for him. He says, I signed up to train a road with a virtual FTP of 216. I was consistent in my training and through endless lockdown from coronavirus, I've worked up to an FTP of 283. Way to go. That's impressive. He says, I had not ridden outside for more than an hour since July. The rules relaxed this week, so I decided to try an Everest. That sounds like he just decided on a whim. Wow. <laughs> like, I would never just Calendar decide. freed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who does that? And he says, my sleep was good. I ate heaps and my legs were still spinning at 22 hours later. No problem. Thanks to Trainer Road. I got my slow 350 kilometer Everesting attempt done. That's Way to go. And that also shows that it's about training energy systems, right? So, uh, I guarantee you, he did not do a 22 hour <coughs> trainer, trainer ride before this. He says, uh, but my lower back seized up halfway through and that was debilitating. I needed help getting on and off the bike. Uh, so he says, I have other big rides planned later on. Should I be looking at a strength program or will more longer rides be enough? So I guess this is where we, uh, let's talk about back stuff. Uh, Pete, um, what are your thoughts <clears throat> on this? I, Backs are so interesting because, uh, it's such a integral part of your cycling ability is to be able to withstand all sorts of things. Even some people need to withstand an Everest. Some people don't. Um, 
I would say, but <clears throat> let's be honest. None yeah. of us probably need <laughs> yes. to do an Everest. <laughs> uh, but the, the interesting thing is, uh, everybody has different kind of, uh, compromised abilities with their back, whether it's from injury or anything. Um, and so everybody needs a certain amount of maintenance to feel healthy and to feel good and to stay on top of their fitness and be able to utilize their fitness correctly. Um, and kind of having a maintenance plan, whether that's strength training for some people, some people it's mobility, some people it's, um, more care and not doing dumb things like, you know, carrying, lifting heavy things, throw me in the trash can, stuff like that. Like there's a lot of stuff that would affect your back in a positive way and everybody's kind of prescription is different. So pay attention to what hurts your back and pay attention to when it hurts and then start trying to like dig through and figure out the things you can do. And then it's going to be a job forever. Um, it's, mm. it's one of the hard things that as your body changes, it'll also change, but you always have to stay the same maintenance and maybe more, um, and maybe less sometimes if you're in really good shape. Um, but it's something that you always have to take care of. Um, and like Ivy, I think you have some experience with taking care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Reading, uh, Andrew's question was, I think the closest I've been to being like an empath. Like I had a visceral <laughs> reaction reading that because of so many prior back issues. Um, yeah, have been dealing with an SI joint dysfunction for most of my cycling career. And it took years to finally figure out how to manage. And it's like, along with just with any injury, it should be a multifaceted approach of like PT and chiropractic care if you need it and stretching and professional massage if you need it. Um, but surprisingly, the most effective tool for me was um, it just started with foam rolling and evolved into trigger point massage, um, with just like a lacrosse ball that you can get, you know, like sports goods stores or whatever, um, that ended up fostering a better comprehensive understanding of my own injuries and wellness and helped me have the agency to like identify those problem areas and preemptively detect those injuries in their early stages. Um, I mean, like, like you said, Pete, you know, like sometimes you need more maintenance and other times you need less and like really, um, yeah, those PT and chiropractic and professional care parts of injury is, are really important. But after, after that, developing your own autonomy and your own like self work, um, when done safely can have really big overarching impacts to knowing just like yourself and your body and helping prevent that. That's a really good point. You develop like a, a sense of awareness. It's, I know this sounds really strange, but if we don't ever take the time to do that, we just kind of carry on and we aren't familiar with, with like pain points, trigger points or doing anything like that. And, and yeah, you can kind of like develop like a numbness to the whole thing. And then the problem just never gets solved. I, I have a question actually specifically on the SI joint issue. Um, because a lot of, a lot of triathletes also write in about this because SI joint issues also come a lot of the time hand in hand with running <clears throat> issues as well, just because of how much stress is usually placed there. Did you find anything in particular amongst all the things you did? Was there anything in particular that was most helpful for you, Ivy, or whether that could be a, a specific trigger point approach or a specific massage approach, anything like that? Yeah. So, um, it's hard to, yeah, for the sake of transparency, I'm not a 
therapist or medical professional of any kind, (laughs) this uh, uh, approach like may not work for everyone, but that, um, yeah, that learning a sense of self thing. Um, for me, it was, um, getting familiar with a lacrosse ball and my, um, my SI joint dysfunction comes from a tightness in the QI muscle. Um, it's like internal that kind of connects from one of your vertebrae to that pelvic iliac crest. And when it gets tight, it was pulling my pelvis and rotating it. Um, and so leaning, uh, against a wall, um, with, um, my lacrosse ball and just kind of like rolling around against the wall made me feel that, um, one particular spot and muscle that was tight for the first time. And then learning that and feeling that that's when I took it to a physical therapist and was like, these are my sensations when I'm, you know, doing trigger point massage and it helped them point to this is the muscle that's causing the problem. Let's fix it. So, um, yeah, rolling around on a lacrosse ball will help you. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that too, because it shows that the onus isn't always upon, like you can't just expect the PT massage therapist, whatever you can't expect them to just be able to find the problem perfectly and then go straight for that. We all have a lot of problems and a lot of deficiencies. So I don't, if you've ever gone to like a really comprehensive PT, they'll, they'll pick these points out and you'll feel like, Oh my goodness, I'm a broken human. But (laughs) if they're really good, they'll say, no, no, you're not. That's just the way that we all are. Like our bodies are these crazy adaptive things where it's constantly making changes in one way or another to compensate for something or to change around. So So when you go somewhere and they say that like, oh, you have this going on, just know that chances are you probably have a whole lot of other things going on too. And it's okay. Um, But that's a really good point when you can find something that you know, particularly, hey, like this is an imbalance. This feels weird. This is strange. That's really good to point out to them because it can really help them. You know, uh, Sean mentioned this in, I thought it was interesting. So Sean, uh, Hurley, one of our awesome copywriters, you've uh, probably read plenty of his stuff over on the blog and and y'all should. Uh, so he, he mentioned that, so he did an Everesting attempt not long ago as well. And a successful one, I should say. And he mentioned that his back was really uncomfortable on it. He's like, but also he's like, I can't remember the last time because it's never happened that I've ridden 22 hours and planned to do that. Right. Like, (laughs) so there's, there's a, there's also a side of this where it's kind of like, you know, if you're a grand tour rider like Amber and it's your, it's literally your job to be able to put in these five hour days and be able to perform for those five hours every day. And you know, that's going to happen a lot. You want to make sure that you're prepared for that. But if it's like a once a year sort of a thing, you can, you probably don't have to rearrange your entire life around that. It's kind of like a lot of the time, the analogy that people use and you buy one of those really expensive, like toy hauler campers, and then you use it like once a, a year. And it's like, you're paying a mortgage for, for a, a thing that you use just once a year. Right. So think of the use case of what you're going to do for cycling. And it's like, like, yeah, when you did that crazy long ride and somebody got hurt and you had to take a different route and it turned into a longer day and it was crazy and you experienced back pain. Okay. You probably weren't prepared for that and you probably never did it again. So that's, there's one thing, but if you're experiencing back pain regularly, and if it's something, you know, where it's something that's coming up and it's actually hindering your performance in the way that you plan to ride in a day-to-day fashion, then you, you know, you really have to make sure that you keep up on those things. Amber, how about you? I, I, even if it wasn't you, I'm sure that you had teammates that you 
helped with this or that, that we're going through this sort of issue for years. I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of familiarity with it. Oh man. Yeah. Speaking of that, everybody's got something going on. Like I joke sometimes you never get to the, st- the start of a race at hundred percent and it's just true because everybody's got asymmetries and compensations and little issues that are going on from time to time. But <clears throat> I think that, um, everything that Pete and Ivy said are really true because usually it's the case that the, the place where you're feeling the pain is not the cause of the pain. So it's important to kind of figure out your body and figure out what are some of the motor patterns maybe that are compensating for tightness somewhere else. And it really helps to have a PT to help guide you on that. Cause PTs can say, Oh, okay. Low back pain that might be connected to hamstrings that might be connected to hip stability. Um, and they might be able to kind of help you identify upstream effects that you can work on to alleviate the pain. Uh, but I think that what Ivy said is really key here. It's, it's figuring out your own body and understanding like, okay, once you start to understand, oh, I tend to get tight in, you know, my medial glutes or whatever it happens to be. And that that can be an issue for you. Then like Pete said, that's something that you can just say, okay, I'm going to take five minutes a day, you know, before, after my ride, you just integrate it. Or like, I'm going to do it while brushing my teeth or whatever, (laughs) like brush your teeth and roll against a ball on the wall or something. But if you know what your kind of pain points are, you can address those more regularly and kind of develop a good maintenance routine. The other thing I would say to your point, Jonathan, was that, um, yeah, if you're going to do a 22 hour to a 22 hour ride, like I've never done a 222 hour ride. I don't plan on it. So it's really hard to say how my body would respond to that. But the cool thing is you did. And now you've identified this kind of like weak link in the chain, so to speak. So your weak link is your low back. That might not be the cause, but it gives you a really good starting point to figure out like, okay, there's some kind of a compensatory pattern here that now you can kind of dig into so that if you are doing a four hour, five hour ride, you have a maintenance routine that's going to make sure that you stave off some of that pain in the future. So that's kind of cool. You have this really interesting data point that not a lot of people are going to get. Um, The other thing I would say for people who are planning to do a really big event like this, practice moving around on the bike because it's really easy. Like we want to get into a rhythm, you know, where you feel like, okay, I'm maintaining my cadence. I'm maintaining my power, but practice in training, alternating sitting and standing that can do a lot. Just the changing your posture from sitting to standing, um, can stretch out your back. It can move your, just move things around. So you're using muscles a little bit differently or using different muscles. Um, and then practice stretching on the bike, like in an Everesting attempt, you're going to be going up and down a hill. So on the downhill, maybe you've identified that tight hamstrings or a tight glute contribute to low back pain for you. Use that descent as an opportunity to stretch your hamstrings a little bit on the bike. Um, little things like that, that you can do. So if you're, you know, you're going to, you're going to go do a 10, 20 hour ride. You don't plan on doing that in training. So you're not really sure what's going to happen. If you've been working with a PT, you kind of have an idea of what your patterns are and what your maintenance is. Then maybe, you know, you know, um, okay, I, I really need to focus on making sure I get some moments to stretch my hamstring somewhere in this ride. And I can do that on the descent. So some planning ahead like that might help too. So I would just add that to the mix as something else to suggest. I, I feel like a lot of like what we've said here is about how to treat it. And the thing is a lot of us, you know, once we have the problem, <laughs> then we write in the question about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and prior to that, we don't, we don't think to question it. Uh, one thing that I can say in terms of uh, something to prevent it, if I am doing, uh, if I'm staying up on a core routine, 
So that has me doing strength work that's working on my, you know, not just passing all the load to my back, but also working everything in the front to be able to maintain my posture on the bike, to be able to maintain technique when things are tricky, whether that's, you know, you're putting out a lot of power, whether that's you're riding and trying to stay really aerodynamic or whether you're trying to deal with traction issues, like, you know, single speed cyclocross IV, you know, and trying to deal with like slippery stuff like that. There's, you pass a ton of tension through your back because your pelvic positioning, especially when traction is marginalized is a huge determinant of whether you have traction or not. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tool that you use for that. But I've found that if I'm doing a core routine, then I, it, it, seems like it passes a lot less stress on my back. That's my bro science assumption uh, of what's going on with my body. But the, the one thing I note is that I don't get the same level of back fatigue. It will push out longer. Uh, like it won't start until later in the ride. What I mean by that, or even if it does show up, it'll be quick and fleeting and then it's gone or something. It's just, it's, it's much less common when I'm keeping up with that. So strength training, once again, we talk about this so much, uh, but it's, it's, it can be so helpful for that because if you have like a, if your back is bothering you, it's really hard for you to put out the power that you should be putting out and to, or like for you, Amber, to be heads up enough in your head, to be monitoring the race and making sure you're keeping track of everything. When your back is, is really calling for so much of that mental attention, it's, it's really tough. So if you can really kind of nip it in the bud with being prepared with strength training, I feel like that can help a lot too. So. Anything else that, that we want to add on that one? I would just add, if you're going to see a PT, try to find one that's familiar with cycling because that really helps a lot. Cause they'll understand and they'll probably have worked with other cyclists and they'll know kind of what, what they're looking, you know, what your normal routine is. And, um, maybe it'll give them kind of a jump on diagnosing some of those upstream issues and Think of it a little bit like if you bring your bike to this bike shop, it's really helpful to the, to the mechanic to be able to tell them uh, it, it's a squeak versus a clunk, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> describing the noise. It's the same thing, you know, describing the sensation when it happens, um, you know, what patterns you've noticed around it, um, exactly, you know, the type of sensation it is. Is it a tightness? Is it pain? Is, is it dull pain? Is it a sharp pain? All of those things can really help a PT, but finding a PT that's already familiar with cycling will get you a lot, a lot further, I think, from the get go. Yeah. You wouldn't bring your bike to like a diesel mechanic, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Figure it out. What's going on? Yeah. Amber, are those bro science terms squeak and clunk? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need we need like a little like a little noise that like every time somebody says something bro science, we're like pom pom or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just... <laughs> you have a squeak and a clunk at your psoas and your fourth vertebrae, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's go. Oh, and first, and something I forgot to say, get well soon to Nate, uh, our CEO. Yeah. And of course, guest host on this podcast, he had a hard crash over, over the weekend, <clears throat> a mountain bike crash <clears throat> and, uh, riding in some unfamiliar terrain and, and it bit him really bad. So got a concussion and got some stitches and stuff. He's, he's, he's pretty beat up. He's doing well. Spirits are high, but, uh, just the same. Get well soon, Nate. Yeah. <clears throat> Bummer to see a crash. Uh, okay. Brendan says, I have two questions to ask here and I will be training to race. <clears throat> forgive me. Load a job for the third time next year. He says, I also did the ride version three times before that. So for anybody listening here, this sounds very similar and I need to drink some water. Uh, 
great podcasting there. Sorry about that. Um, so he says, um, he says, I, this is exactly, if you listen to the successful athletes podcast, we actually, <clears throat> it's hilarious here because we, we interviewed somebody that is in the race and, and in that interview, he was actually talking about, oh yeah, this rider launched the sprint way too early. And, and it just, so then I was able to come around that, well, this is the rider that launched the sprint way too early. So, <laughs> so we're world. We've, full circle here. <clears throat> Uh, so he said he's done it before, but he says, I'm wondering what the best specialty plan is to pick for this race. And he says, this will be my first time using trainer road to train for the race. No doubt. He listened to the podcast and he's like, I'm going to beat that guy. <laughs> so he says, as you know, there are three main climbs and then the rest of the race is relatively flat with a typically a sprint finish. I finished third place last year in the cat fours due to a botched sprint way to go, by the way, that's something to be super proud of. And this is the longest one day USAC race in the country, which is really cool. He says, but I was dropped on the last climb and had to descend like a madman to catch up to the elite group. My second question has to do with the botched sprint. Um, and we'll address both of these after I read them. He says, I'm the person referenced in the successful athletes podcast for starting that sprint too early. As we approached the sprint, I was boxed in to, and I'm going to try to use my hands to, to, to do this. If you're driving, don't use your hands. <clears throat> uh, but so he says, I was boxed in. Uh, or as we approached this sprint, I was boxed in toward the back of the two groups. So there are two groups on the road and he was at the back and he says cat three and four and cat four. And he says, and I was on the very edge of the road boxed in at the edge. There's two groups. He's probably feels like he's at the furthest point away that he could be from where the action is. Right. That's what I'm imagining in, in this situation. The other cat fours were up front and on the other side of the pack and not having positioning to follow an attack by the cat fours due to the cat three fours being in front of me. So he was kind of like stuck and separated from his group. I took an opening when it presented itself to start my sprint. Hence why I went early. And this caused me to not be able to sustain my sprint to the finish and get passed by the other riders. So my question is in this situation, what would have been a better approach to this sprint? As always great podcast, five stars and look forward to listening every week. And you can leave us five stars by the way, uh, right on iTunes. Cause that helps Here's how that works. <clears throat> and the reason that we talk about that, if you rate the podcast on iTunes, then what that does is that tells iTunes, Hey, people are listening to and rating this podcast. So we should recommend it to more people. So we have tons of people listening to the podcast, obviously many all the time, but the ratings part helps too. So then that way, when a new cyclist is like, Oh, I like podcasts and I'm into cycling now cycling. And when they type that in, that means they'll find our podcast. So anyways, um, that's why you do that. And you can leave it on iTunes and we'd really appreciate it or Google, uh, Google play store or Google podcasts. Okay. So which specialty plan to pick? Let's just get that one out of the way first. Um, so it's hard to beat century for this sort of a race. We've talked about Loto John in a previous episode. We want to do it together too, because I think that it'd be a ton of fun to do. Um, I know a 200 mile road race, uh, strangely fun, but yeah, when we talk about this, it's hard to beat century because the century plan works on a huge amount of like sustained work, but then also works on that like three to five minute VO two that Amber's mentioned plenty of times that is like, those are like. That's decisive fitness in a road race, because that's like the sort of thing when you're not prepared for those three to five minute efforts, that's when you get peeled off a bit early and then you miss that move and you can't go with them. And then it's too tough to recover. It's so the century plan does a really good, oh, the worst, right? <laughs> or the hardest workouts, um, but they make you fast. So, uh, so the century plan works on that and it increases those the closer you get to your event. So it, it really does a good job of prepping you for it, but rolling road race could be good too. And they're very different plans in a lot of ways. 
Rolling Road Race works on a lot of higher intensity stuff and more repeatability, close proximity and short duration efforts that are really high. But this brings me to like a good point. And Pete, like it's, it totally depends on like a lot of the time we just look at the course and we think this is the plan for the course and you can do that. One of the cool things with the calendar is you can go in and just change your specialty plan, click on it on your calendar and you can change it by the way. But it also depends on how you're going to race it, right? Like criterion racing is such a good example. You can either be punchy and repetitive or you can be a long bomb sort of rider. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that people need to really evaluate about themselves too. Like for Latoja, like it's Lodja. Yeah. Lodja. <laughs> Latoja. <laughs> Latoja. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, for a lot of people, that's going to be just survive, right? Like really the whole plan is just to make it to the end and then see what happens. But if, if you're the type of person that needs more repetitive efforts and not <laughs> that like 150 miles of slog, um, you're going to have to break up the race somehow. And that's probably by repeated efforts. Um, and it's, it, the same thing, you can mirror that into a 30-minute criterium. You're going to figure out a way to win the criterium, not just on the course, but how you're going to race it, which is super important. So whether you're kind of a steady, long-distance power kind of person, you know that you're going to have to tackle the race differently than if you're the sprinter, and those are the usually the two we use. But there's so many gray areas in between that um, maybe you're really like two or three five-minute attacks kind of person. And that's actually where you can kind of make some fissures in the race. And then when you actually hit it, the last five minutes is when you get away. Um, so thinking about how you would race each race and then making sure that your training capitalizes on that fitness is super important. Yeah. Yeah. Great tips. Let's talk about avoiding getting boxed in. Um, <clears throat> because, it, and actually last night I was just teaching like a, a youth group all about cycling. And we were talking about like how cycling is a chess match and you make your moves with energy and it's finite and it's so complex and that's what makes it so fun. But this is what makes bunch sprints so hard. Like it, they're not simple <laughs> and, and they're there. And it's not just who has the strongest sprint. Like, even though that's, you know, kind of like the, the common assumption, but a lot of it is like intuition and Ivy having raced, you know, pro and raced on the road and ton of this stuff. I'm sure you noticed that from beginning to where you are now. What was the intuition process of building like for you? How long did it take? It took forever. <laughs> like <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, a lot of, uh, cyclists, um, in Amber and I's field, like it's, it's pretty easy to get like the fitness part, like pretty quickly, just like, we're great at it. We can get fit super quick and learning that intuition of how to navigate a bunch sprint, like in whatever field you're in, um, takes years and years and seasons of consecutive racing to perfect. And, you know, like Pete is saying, there are like scenarios in which you need to like prepare for how a race can shake down. Um, but ultimately even the most seasoned sprinters, I mean, mistakes all the time. Um, and it's important to be super kind and gentle to yourself in that process and like understanding that it's going to take years to figure out. And that process of sharpening those skills in itself can feel super rewarding. Mm. Yeah, Is there, true. it takes patience. Sorry, go ahead, Amber. <laughs> this yeah. is not something that you can hack. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is, um, because every race that you're in, it ends up being different. There's something different about it. So it's 
extremely rare that you're going to ever find yourself in exactly this situation ever again. There will be something about it that's different. So every race that you do, the more you can learn and absorb from that in terms of principles, the better, because then you kind of have this database in the back of your brain. So when you're evaluating every new scenario that arises, you're thinking about it from um, experience and principles and all of those over time are what will create your race intuition so that you don't have to think about it really. You can just react more in the moment and your reactions and your intuition will be more aligned with what's needed in the moment. But really it's about gleaning as much as you can from every experience because then you'll be able to apply that more dynamically in changing circumstances and in new races in the future. Mm. One thing I want to clarify with this too, just to be like super clear with this, what we're talking about is screwing up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like that, <laughs> that's the process, like not getting it figured, like missing the mark, not doing it right. And then that's where the patience comes in is being okay with the, and, and being understanding and kind with yourself and saying, Hey, it's okay that I didn't make it this time. I'm learning. Every race is a learning opportunity. And that's why it is a really good strategy to race as often as possible. I know Pete, like for you, like when you were in your college days, like you would have raced six times a day if you could have every day. <laughs> for sure. No for breaks. Every, every single day I would have. Um, <laughs> and I, that's actually, it's perfect that um, both Amber and Ivy said this, that it's, there's 1000 things that you could do differently every time in the last two laps or one lap, let's call it a thousand things. So not only are you paying attention to what worked and what didn't work, but what came before that and what came after that and how those influenced those other decisions again. And so that's why when you run the scenarios, like a race is, uh, you could run it a million times and it would never be the same. And so you have to be able to take like nuggets that you can apply in more races than just this one. And then also be able to look at the information that happened and be like, nope, this was actually a one-off time just for this race and I shouldn't change my behavior based on this one thing. So mm. it's really, that's why being a one, like the best sprinters in the world are only there for a couple of years probably. And it took them five years to get there or 10 years to get there. Um, it's so, so complicated. Um, and I think that's, that's why you want to race as much as you can, because then you get more feedback and more information in the system every single time. Um, but definitely try to logically think about what you did, what you did correctly, what you did incorrectly and how those impacted one another, um, which mm -hmm. is difficult. This is why we have so many race analysis videos about positioning. If you look at that, whether it's Amber, Keegan, uh, Pete, Sophia, like we have all these athletes talking about positioning, positioning, positioning over and over. And, and it's like a, there, there will come a strange point in your evolution as a cyclist where you start to realize like, oh, I'm like, I'm not caring as much about my max power output or putting down a really picturesque big sprint. Instead, I'm just constantly focusing on positioning. And when you really start to focus on that, that's where you start to, I feel like really make uh, improvements. And Pete, you've taught me a lot about positioning, whether it's you telling me about it or just watching you race, you are really, really good. It's almost like, um, like Pete and I very social, very like, you know, chatty sort of like we, that's our relationship. When it comes down to the end of a race, Pete is not, Pete is very focused <laughs> and he has a task that he's working on and it's positioning mm -hmm. and you're really good at it. I constantly see you working at it. It's, yeah. it's a strength of yours, I think. I definitely, and, and I, honestly, that's probably 
half of the reason I'm as good of a racer as I am is because that is something that clicks really well with my brain. And it's like this fun efficiency game where how little, how little energy can I use to be in this position versus this position versus this position. Um, and I'm lucky that I like that. And it somehow it's fun to sit, sit on someone's wheel and think about how much energy this is costing. But, um, I know not everybody is that way. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting in a sprint, especially, and I'll, I'll be the first one to say, I am not a very good sprint positioner, even for myself. I know some laws that I should abide to. Um, and I think one of the things that a lot of people have a really hard time with is getting comfortable in the front of a race during the last lap or two, because it's, it's pretty much terrifying. Like, um, for almost all races, even if it's a pan flat, like six lane highway, um, where you're going 30 miles an hour, it's still scary and people still crash and things still happen. So one of the things that you can think about is if you're in control of your movement and you're always moving yourself forward, you're like fighting upstream in the race. So you're always leaning forward into the race and trying to, um, like advance your position. So you're never, ever going back. You you're in control and you're going to feel much more comfortable around the, around the people next to you because you're advancing. As soon as you're getting advanced on and people are coming around you, you're no longer in control of the situation and it gets 10 times scarier, a hundred times scarier because all of a sudden you're not in control and you're not putting your handlebars in front of other people's handlebars and you can get pinched and pushed and stuff like that. So for people who are just trying to get into the sprint, who have never dipped their toes into the water, find like one of the sides, one of the front sides, and use too much energy to keep yourself at the front and just get familiar with what that feels like. Because once you're more familiar with what that kind of the pressure required on the pedals and like mentally to keep yourself forward and to keep yourself with everybody, um, then you can start thinking about racing too. But initially, mm. it's the only thing you can think about is just staying there and not how to win the race. It's just like, okay, I'm going to try to sit third or fourth or fifth wheel, and that's it. And then that's my victory for the day. All I have to do is stay there for some amount of time. It might only be 30 seconds. It might be a lap. And that's okay, right? Like, that's, that's, a, that's a victory in itself, and you learned a new skill, and it made you a better racer. Mm. There's uh, the, the part of this, too. There's a predatory instinct that kicks in. The reason that once you get past once and you move back, then you keep moving back. I'm sure you've noticed this Ivy and Amber, when you see a rider ahead of you and that rider just got past instantly in my mind, it's like that rider's going back. I can get around, I can get around them too. I'm going to get around that person. It's like you, you like, there's like blood in the water and that's moving back. And if they move back, you're like, I can move ahead of them too. I, am I the only one feeling this or have you, have you all felt this too? <laughs> okay, good. Definitely. Yeah. I'm not alone. Okay. Yeah. 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 Embarrassed nods. Um, cause that's something that in, in the end of the race, you're taking in so many cues and like Pete said, just practicing riding at the front like that and holding that third wheel position, whatever it is, is really good at getting yourself used to that. Cause then it alleviates the pressure of sprinting at the right time, having the speed to sprint, the danger of the sprint, everything else like that. It's a really good way to, to make sure that you're used to those demands beforehand. Let's, let's kind of focus in on like mistakes in the last kilometer though, in general, like Ivy, do you have like in, in your learning through racing, what mistakes are regularly made by all of us cyclists that you would advise us on avoiding? Sure. Um, 
Well, uh, I think the most important thing to understand about how the last few laps or the last kilometer of a race can shake down is that you're not in control. Like, even if you have, like, you know, you still have five teammates and, a whole, like, a huge lead out left, like, you're not going to be in control. And, like, so much of what Pete mentioned about, like, all of these things changing around you in the race, like, you're not going to be able to control that either. And so, like, fighting to stay in that top whatever position you determine is like your goal um isn't just working to hold that position it's constantly moving and so um and it's not necessarily going to be like oh i'm at the back of this group like let me just do one big enormous effort that's (laughs) a minute and a half long and get to the front of this race like that's a you know that's a huge mistake to make um and so a lot of it is just like that intuition of learning like to follow some other dum-dum that's going to do that for you and like getting a free ride or just like moving up one position and you know a lot of that too like a big mistake you can make when you're doing that is not learning how to safely command your space when you're working for a position and that in itself is a sub skill um that will take Mm. years and years and seasons to safely and confidently perfect Oh, wow. Yeah, that's super true. That's a, um, and that's like a subtle thing, right? Amber, like you've mentioned going over to Europe and dealing with like, it felt like it was a different sport all of a sudden, like everything though everyone was on bikes, but there is like, there is subtlety to that where athletes can, when an athlete belongs there and feels they belong there because of the experience they've accrued and their self-belief, they do race differently and it's not overly aggressive. It's just they own that space. I, and I don't, I'm not sure really how to break that down. Um, that's well, a, but that's a really good point, Ivy. I just yeah, had I like think... a, oh, I just had a flashback of like European writers that like really command their space, like <laughs> put their hands on you. Like if they want your wheel, like it's crazy. <laughs> well, this goes back to what you were saying, Jonathan, about the rider that you see getting passed ahead of you. And then you think, oh, okay, I can get around that rider. Well, that happens throughout the race, actually, not just in the last K. And by the time you get to the finish, you've been racing with these folks for a whole race and you have a really good idea of the people who are super solid wheels and who are likely to be moving up and motivated to move up and have the skill to move up and do it safely. And you've already probably picked out a few wheels that you really want to avoid because maybe they're not trying to move forward and they do keep getting pushed back or Maybe they're a little bit squirrely. So when you get to the finish, you already know everyone in the field kind of knows, all right, that person, you know, maybe it's one of the European riders in the peloton, like (laughs) you don't want to fight that person for a wheel and not because they're (laughs) dangerous, but because they own and command their space. And you know that if you kind of get into a chicken fight with them, you're probably not going to win. They're not going to put anybody Mm. at risk by doing this, but you establish yourself throughout the whole race. And if you establish yourself as somebody who's not going to open up a gap, somebody who's going to be solid through the corners, who's not going to be putting anybody at risk, people are going to be a little bit more okay with letting you hold the wheel that you want. But if you're somebody who's constantly getting passed and pushed back in the field, nobody's going to feel comfortable being behind you and they're all going to want to move around you. And again, that is a skill that you need to work on a little bit over time, but just keep in mind and 
this can play in your favor as well, because you can identify the people who are really good at moving forward, who are super solid, who you feel safe around. And those are the wheels that you want to be following in the finish of a race. Um, Mm. one way that you can work on this is to know that again, the, your, your handlebars and your front wheel are the most vulnerable part of the space that you occupy. If somebody hits you on the hip or even touches your rear wheel, all of that stuff is really safe and stable, but your handlebars can pivot as can your front wheel. So if somebody hits your handlebar, your front wheel, that pivoting motion is the thing that makes you more vulnerable. So you don't have to worry so much about who's behind your handlebars, but you do need to worry about where your front wheel is and where your handlebars are. And, um, I think that focusing on that really helps because it's, it, it alleviates a lot of stuff that you don't have to pay attention to. And a good way of doing this as an exercise in a race is just to think to yourself, I need to move up I need to move past two handlebars. Like that always feels pretty doable, right? Like I can move past one set of handlebars and another set of handlebars. That feels doable. And because the race is so dynamic, sometimes you might be all the way at the back and you only need to move past two handlebars, two handlebars, and you're at the front of the race again. And I think that breaking it down into smaller bite-sized little things like that can help because if you get pushed toward the back of the race and you're like, Whoa, I'm so far away from the front. I'll never get back there again. That mental space can be really debilitating. But if you just say, yeah, okay, two handlebars, two handlebars. And that helps you make these little smaller, subtler movements where you're not having to blast up the entire side of the Peloton. And doing that is how you do what Pete and Ivy have been talking about, which is constantly moving forward, leaning into and moving, you know, upward through the stream versus getting pushed back and don't Mm. give up. If you get pushed back, keep pushing forward. Okay. Someone passed you move past two handlebars, move past two handlebars. And all of that will help you command your space and help you keep moving forward in the field. And that's a really good focus drill to work on uh, as far as positioning goes. And I think that you can learn a lot from doing that. Mm. There's something too with this where, so Pete, you've mentioned this before, taking it one set of handlebars at a time, kind of just like little by little by little. And I think that that's a really helpful thing to do is to just step up like that. Um, and something keeps getting brought up and it's that move of desperation. I would call it that an athlete does toward the end. And it's either because it's too complex and mentally overwhelming. So we just choose strength. And so we just go, just push hard on the pedals and sprint and we'll get there. Or it's a situation where we've worked ourselves into a situation where we feel like we're so disadvantaged that we're frustrated. And then we do the thing that we absolutely shouldn't do, which is instead just use up all of our energy in one blow. That's never going to work. However, in the moment it makes sense to us and we do it and (laughs) we see it all the time. And it's even like, if you watch the USA crits, um, those races are really interesting to watch. You'll see riders do this move of desperation, even professional athletes. So this shows everyone does it, but they'll do this toward the end of a race. And then you'll see a team that's really like trying to control and patrol the front. When they see those moves of desperation, they do not worry. They recognize those and they let that athlete burn up. It's like, like, you know, bouncing off on re-entry, right? Like they're going for it, going for it. And they're just not even going to be able to make it back in. They just, you know, and, and we've all done this before where you find yourself in a situation where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, to do a good job and I'm ready to race. I'm ready to sprint. I think I can win this race. But then you get into the scenario of positioning, positioning gets difficult. 
Like in this scenario, you're at the back corner. There's a group in between you and where you want to be. You're so far away from it. So you just decide to go resist that temptation at all costs. If instead what you can do is say, how can I improve my position right now? That, and remember improving your position, isn't just riding fast next to a group, right? That's, that's bad because you're in a, a bad spot. Anyway, you aren't sheltered and then you've lost all your energy, but instead just focus on being super efficient, doing those micro movements. And that's what it feels like. It feels like you're constantly, like if you stop, you're on an escalator going down. So you, you constantly have to keep stepping up and going against that escalator when that's what it feels like. And right when you feel like you've got it and you're into perfect position, it won't last because like mm -hmm. Ivy said, there's so many things out of your control. So it's being committed to that constant like iteration of like where you are. And now I need to do this, need to do this, need to do this constant improvement with that. So it's, it's a really it's, and man, once you do it, it feels great when you figure that out because it's, it's just so cool. You get to the finish and you're actually fresher and you can sprint well, or you get to a spot where you realize I just won that race and I didn't even get close to my peak power. I didn't even need to. It just feels so awesome when you can win a race on efficiency like that. It's, it's just really cool. Amber, you have some other tips on here too, about, cause we're talking about kind of like a reactionary approach almost like once you're in the moment, but you can probably do a whole lot beforehand too, to try to help yourself in this scenario so that it could make positioning and or sprinting easier. Yeah. I think nobody likes to get blocked like in getting boxed in. It's, it's kind of everybody's worst nightmare at a finish, but I think that, um, a better way of framing this mentally is not that you want to avoid getting boxed in. Cause there are time, I mean, you know, up until 500, 300, 200 meters to go, you might actually want to be tucked in. And that might mean being a little bit boxed and letting somebody else open the door for you. Um, that's a, that's so, so I wouldn't focus more on what you don't want to do. What you do want to do is put yourself in a position to win. So like Pete and Ivy have said, and we've all experienced, there's so much that you cannot control in a race, but what you can do is just, so you can't say like, okay, I'm going to win this race but you can put yourself in a position to win and make that the goal. And that becomes much more attainable, much more controllable, much more within something that you can, you know, uh, you can create this uh, situation in which you have, you're in position to win. So put yourself in p position to win. That's the best way to approach it. Um, and a few things that you can do this in a 200 mile point to point race, this might be kind of hard, but in other races, <laughs> you might have the opportunity to, to inspect the finish line. In fact, a lot of the races that we do, the start and the finish are the same. So you can actually look at the finish and go through pedal backwards on the course a little ways, as long as it's okay. Or, you know, we even walk it on the sidewalk backwards and mentally, you know, check out some landmarks. What's the 200 meter to go point? You know, is that where you would want to start your sprint? What's a really big, obvious landmark that you'll be able to mentally see when you're coming into the finish and you're totally redlined, um, get that in your head. And then no other things like wind direction hazards. Maybe there's a better line, an ideal line that you would want to take. Um, and then know exactly where your sprint point is. And then maybe you'll even see some potential good extra exit strategies. So if you know that the wind is coming from the left, you'll know that everybody's going to be seeking shelter on the right side. And so most of the Peloton is probably going to be on the right side of the road. So you'll look for maybe some potential exits on, you know, the left side of the road or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of start to think about and predict some of what might happen based on 
the curves in the road, where the final corner is, what the wind direction is. And you definitely want to make note of those hazards. So you have this plan in your mind of what you would do in an ideal situation. And you have to know that that's probably not going to happen, but at least, you know, okay, I'd, I'd like to take this line. I'd like to go up the right side or up the left side. Ideally, if I have a choice, And because you have those things already in mind, when you come into the finish and you're seeing red and you're super tired and you're on the rivet, it makes the decisions easier. So you might not get to take your ideal line, but in your mind, you said right side's better than left side. And maybe you have a quick decision where, okay, I can either move up the right or the left. I'm going to move up the right because I already looked at the finish and I know that that's the better side. So you can start to just make some, a mental checklist or, um, points and to keep in mind as you're coming into the finish. And that just comes from inspecting the finish. And you can even think through some contingencies like, okay, if I can't take that line, what would be a second best line? If I get forced out onto the windy side, what's a better line that I could take? Um, you can kind of work through some of those scenarios in your head, but at least you've done that mental exercise before you get to the finish. So it's not the first time that you're seeing it and you have some plans and some Mm. contingencies in mind. That this makes me miss crit racing so much. I'm <laughs> yeah. so sad. <laughs> I yes. miss those Tuesday nights that I put way too much value into and treated them probably like they were way too much. Now I realize I was actually exactly right. They are impactful for me personally. Yeah, you learn you know, so like, much, right? Yeah, and, and honestly, like as silly as it is, it's a bike race. I, you get so much fulfillment out of something like that. And it's and it's because you you work hard for something, then you develop a plan, and then you commit to that plan, and you follow through with it. And So it doesn't have to be bike racing to feel that sense of fulfillment, right? Like you can implement that model in anything, but I just really miss the bike racing variety of that. (laughs) So, um, also like uh, some, some skills too, because with holding positioning, I found that this year when I went to the P one, two field, the positioning game got strangely hard. Uh, whereas (laughs) it was relatively easy before. Imagine that, uh, bigger riders, more power, more experience, more momentum, just when riders come, come by you, instead of them creating that momentum right at you, it was, it was really tough. So I think there are also some skills. Like I tried to like, I I tried to just send myself straight into the pace line of Mike's bikes this year. And and it just didn't work off. I bounced (laughs) off like a little tennis ball. So, um, (laughs) so like there are probably some skills too. And you have some down here on this, on this brand or, uh, Amber, forgive me talking about a lateral block or like a a subtle one. What do you mean by that? That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. This one's, this one takes practice to do safely. Um, but it has kind of goes back to the idea that if your handlebars are in front, you're in control. Um, and I learned this when we were, when I first learned how to do a lead out. So imagine you're in a lead out and in a lead out, um, for those who don't know what a lead out is, you basically get your whole team riding in a line. So every single person on your team is in the draft, except for the person in the front. And the goal is that you want to go as fast as you can as a team, giving all of your teammates that, that shelter of the draft behind you. Um, and the person on the front is going as hard as they possibly can, but they only have to go hard for maybe 500 meters, 300 meters, and then they pull off and then the next person goes. So the whole group is maintaining a really high speed, which is going to detract, it's going to, it's going to discourage other people from trying to attack because it's going way too fast, uh, for a single person to try to attack. In the meantime, your sprinter is at the end of the line, getting this really nice draft, what we like to call the armchair ride to the finish line. (laughs) And if it's executed really well, you'll drop your sprinter off at 
200 or 150 meters to go and they'll be super fresh and they'll have, you know, you'll drop them off at like 50 K an hour and they'll sprint and they'll win. Um, that's the goal. But when you're in that line, like you said, Jonathan, there are other people who want that draft too. <laughs> and they're trying really hard to get into that sweet line and get that sweet armchair ride. <laughs> I see mm -hmm. Ivy nodding. I know you've experienced this too. <laughs> so there are, so how do you keep people from coming in on that line? And it's really hard to do, but one of the things you can do, so let's say, I'm in line and I'm, I'm not the person on the front. I'm in the middle of the line. So I have a teammate behind me and a teammate in front of me, and I've got my handlebars here. If I sense somebody in my peripheral vision coming up from behind me, and I can tell that they're, they're kind of trying to move around me. I know that the second that they get their handlebars in front of mine, I am now vulnerable to them. And if they came in on me and tried to get into line ahead of me, I would have to let them do that because otherwise my front wheel is in an unsafe place and I put everybody at risk. So my goal being behind my teammate in front of me is I don't want that person to come close and get their handlebars in front of me. So what I can do is I'll slide out just a little bit. Let's say they're coming up from behind on my right side. I'll slide out a little bit and I'll move forward just a little bit on the right side of my teammate in front of me. So. Now my handlebars are kind of coming up and my handlebars are still in front of them, still in front of them, still in front of them. I can do this because it's my teammate who's in front of me. So I trust her wheel. So I'm putting myself a little bit at risk from my teammate if she were to make a sudden move, but I trust her wheel. So I know I can do that. In the meantime, I'm holding my handlebars in front of the person who's trying to come around on my right side. And that means that the more they try to come around me, I'm forcing them to move further and further away from my lead out train. And I know that my teammate behind me is protecting my wheel too. So somebody's not going to squeak in behind me because my teammate behind me is going to be protecting the space that I'm creating by moving out to the side. And eventually that person will kind of get discouraged. Like, okay, clearly Amber's not going to let me in on her wheel. So they're going to go and try to find somebody else's wheel to take. And then I'll just slowly move back, slotting in behind my teammate in front of me. And that's mm. a really subtle movement. I'm not throwing an elbow out and pushing them. I'm not jerking my bike out of the line to get them out of the way. I'm just sliding up a little bit next to the person in front of me. And that's an elite out, but you can kind of do the same thing in a group. And so you start to develop a sense for like, okay, I can tell there are people coming up behind me. There's a wave of riders that are moving forward. Um, you can kind of start moving out a little bit and discourage them from trying to get in front of you. And at the same time, you might actually get your handlebars in front of somebody who's in that wave. And then you can ride that wave to the front. And these are just really subtle little things to, to try. And at some point when we're back to a point where group rides are safe, this is a really fun drill to practice with teammates is to do, you know, split up into smaller groups, do a little lead out and see if you can steal wheels from each other and get the, that, you know, practice that sensation of just slowly sliding out and, and doing this, like, it's just, it's just a real subtle little lateral block, but you just kind of make, make it a little more frustrating than it's worth for them. And then they'll go find somebody else to pick on. <laughs> you brought up like a, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead, Pete. Oh no, I was just going to say, and it's, this is like, um, kind of what Amber just talked about is like the entire crux of battling for wheels. Um, <laughs> and what that really means is the more familiar you can get with this, the better your performances will be kind of across the board. Um, 
And one of the things you can do, just like Amber said, is it doesn't even have to be a teammate. It can be just your riding partner. What you what you really need to wrap your head around is defending your wheel and trying to take someone else's. So if you just ride right next to someone, have one person defend their wheel and one person try to overtake it. And then you get to understand the kind of energy suck that it is <laughs> to do this. Um, and like Amber said, you want to be a difficult enough wheel to take over that they're going to go for someone else. You don't have to be the best one. You don't have to do anything crazy. You just want to be more difficult than everybody else. So they're going to go for a different position. Um, and once you, once you as a rider can understand how much energy it is to defend your wheel and how much energy it is to overtake a wheel, um, that's going to change the way you start assessing these little decisions at the end of a race where you're like, nope, that's too much energy. I'm actually going to slot in and wait a second and pick a different battle in the next five or 10 or 15 seconds. But this battle right here for this next two seconds isn't worth the energy it's going to cost me. And so mm. that's when it gets really, then you're starting, starting to pick different energy battles during the last couple minutes of a race. And that's like kind of the last frame of reference you really need to understand how much work it is to be in the lead out and or be at the front of the race. Um, but it takes a lot of practice. And definitely if Jonathan's been at team camp where there's probably a shoulder in someone else's shoulder, like half of every ride we do, <laughs> because yeah. it's it it's if you're really familiar with it, it's not scary. And if your teammate is just constantly running into you when you're riding, um, you're a little more resilient to to regular life stuff and regular racing. For sure. If you were on a normal group ride, you'd be like, whoa, when somebody hits shoulders. <laughs> when you're at team cliff bar camp, you're like, oh, they're having fun. They're like slamming into each other. It's, <laughs> it's very normal. I, I have two, one thought and then one question that came up from live with this. So this could totally be wrong. And this is like, like a rule that I have noticed. And so I could just be screwing myself up with this, but I'm just going to risk everything and say it anyway. So um, <clears throat> a rider that is intelligently moving up through a field at the end of a race moves like a bishop on a chessboard, does not move like other pieces where they move straight ahead. And what I mean by that is it's usually a diagonal move. They're moving oh, like not just forward, but towards somebody. And how do you stop a bishop? You stop that lateral movement of them by when they're trying to get all the way across that board, but you put your piece in the way, they can't get to it. They have to stop there. And that thing, like you were saying right there, Amber, when you're, when there's a pace line, and once again, you just got to watch on YouTube because I'm doing this very detailed arm illustration here. But if you've got a bro pace science. line going, that's it. yes, bro science, it's like an easy button. Um, uh, but when you've got a pace line and you're trying to work your way over and into that pace line, and then Amber stops you from doing that with that subtle move out it kind of forces you to rebound. And instead of looking at moving left and forward like you were, now you have to start thinking about how am I gonna move right and move forward? Because I have to move forward. And if I go straight ahead, I'm just gonna waste my own energy. So it's a really good way, like remember that, like a good rider is going to move forward efficiently only in that diagonal line toward other riders. And if you can close down that diagonal path they're on, they're gonna have to look the other way. So. It's a, it's a really good thing that I've noticed to, to, and that's one of the reasons why it always gets interesting when you have a gap where strong riders are like a, a, a pointy spear of the field on the left. And then on the far right, there's another one. Cause then there's that big void where you're going to waste energy in between. So that those lateral movements get really tough. Um, 
a question on this one. Then we're going to move on to Alex's or to, or to Matias' question, which we're actually not gonna applies do two, to this. We're not going to do two hours of boxing and sprint talk. <laughs> I mean, we can. We can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we really yeah. could. Um, uh, so a person is asking right now in the live chat, Pete, that you've mentioned that you set your bike up to race in the hoods rather than the drops. Mm-hmm. And you do this, you race in the hoods almost entirely. Yeah. Uh, of course, not when you're sprinting though. No, no sprinting from the hoods for Pete. So, uh, but they, their question that they have is how do you protect your bars when you're in that scenario? Because a common justification for riding in the drops for people, for a new rider and the way you do that is because you're telling them, well, that helps you protect your bars since your hands are there, it stops your bars from getting hooked. So uh, Pete, how do you reconcile this? Um, So I run my bars really low first. Uh, So even though I always, so part of the reason I always run in the hoods is because I can have the most aggressive setup I possibly can. And then my hoods are kind of where the drops would be for most people or some people. And then I'm pretty, uh, wide as a person. Uh, Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So when I'm in my hoods, even with, uh, even with wide bars, my elbows stick out wider than my handlebars and my shoulders probably do too. Um, but Mm -hmm. almost all the time I kind of have a fake bumper on the side of me with my elbows sticking out a couple inches. So no matter, it's really, I would be really impressed if someone was able to only hit my handlebars and not hit my elbow. Um, but it does happen. And I've definitely, I haven't crashed in a long time, knock on wood. Um, but (laughs) I also ride pretty, um, that forward momentum thing. I never try to, if I, if I let the race get away from me or I get in a bad situation, now I'm at the point where I just sit up and I remove myself out of the dangerous scenario. So, um, but if you're, if you're fighting the right direction upstream, you, people can't get into your handlebars or it's re- unless there's a, mm-hmm. a fluke crash or something, but between having my, uh, my elbows wider than my body and just keeping people away. And I'm pretty happy just giving people nudges to s- stay out of my handlebars. Um, but yeah, it's the forward momentum thing that I think is really, really important. Like probably one of the most important things we could get in your head out of this talk is it's so much safer and so much easier if you're fighting forward in the stream. Um, right. and then it's not dangerous. Go ahead. Amber. Forward. All of the obstacles are coming at you from the front. Yes. And yes. See them coming. <laughs> I have yep. one thing Instead to add the side about, and back, uh, about Pete's, um, position of like riding in the hoods. Um, I mean, something that you'll notice about Pete when he is riding like that and cornering like that, it's not just about protecting his, uh, like space and keeping someone from hooking his handlebars. Like so much of it too is like when he's riding in that position, his, you'll notice that his weight is, it's so much about like his weight distribution. Like he's, his weight is so forward on the bike. Like he's still in um, like an aerodynamic position and that's not just for speed or it's not just about riding in the drops to protect your space. It's also about keeping your weight over that front wheel to keep it from slipping out when you're going really high speed around corners. And like, that's why it works for Pete for him to do that is because even when he's on his hoods or on the tops of the bars, like he's still, his weight is super far forward over the front wheel. So it's not necessarily just about protecting your bars. It's also about keeping your weight forward. So you don't necessarily have to race in the drops if your weight distribution is forward on the bike. So true. Yeah. Super good insight, Ivy. 
Yeah. Uh, let's go into Mattia's question. He says, I'm an Italian under 23 cyclist and racing most of the UCI under 23 calendar against continental and some professional teams with the goal to turn pro in one or two years. Congrats, Mattia. Exciting stuff. He says, I switched from running to cycling two years ago. Wow. Quick rise there for him. So even if I have quite good values, about a 5.7 watt KG, he mentions. Uh, so that is a very fast person. I really lack the technical abilities of riding in the field and saving energy during the long four hour races. I found really useful a lot of, or I found a lot of your videos to be very useful about race strategy, but during this off season, I really want to improve the technical side to get myself ready at the beginning of races. How can I improve it without racing though? Maybe there's some bike handling drills I can practice. And do you have any advice? And he says, thanks and big congratulations on your podcast. Well, thanks Matia and big congratulations to you on such strong dedication to just two years. And he's already thinking about going pro, uh, I guess not unlike you, Amber, uh, from <laughs> transferring from swimming over uh, to that. So, um, so this is a great one because it's got, what, what do we do since we can't race like you and group rides might not be safe where you're at. I know France and Europe, a lot of Europe is now getting lockdowns put in place that are, that are already affecting, you know, your ability to ride outside and do that sort of thing. And, and it's probably all within our best interest to, to question whether we should be riding with others and, you know, maybe you can safely, maybe you can't, but with that in mind, uh, what to get comfortable in a group for Mattia, he's doesn't have this background in cycling in running. It's one thing and running, there's plenty of, you know, elbowing and, and pushing and stuff too, that exists within that as well. So he's perhaps not familiar with aggressive race dynamics, but on a bike, it just feels entirely different. Did you, Amber, did you bump up against this at all? I mean, coming from the swimming side and were there drills, <laughs> her eyes got big. <laughs> so that's why Pete's laughing there. Were there drills or what was the most helpful? Because there were so many things and you did so many races, I'm sure like, you know, but, but what were the most crucial or really the things that really moved you forward in terms of comfort with that sort of group dynamic? It, this is a hard one to answer because what, what really made the difference for me was racing. And that's the one mm -hmm. thing that we're saying is, um, not really accessible right now. So I, if I were in your shoes, one of the things I would do is kind of look at this from another angle. Um, part of what makes it really hard to get this right off the bat is it's scary. And so when you get in the group and you don't feel familiar with this, then that fear, we, we talk about sympathetic activation a lot, right? And so, um, I'll talk about this more in one of the questions a little bit later, but you want some sympathetic activation for a race. It's kind of like when you're launching a rocket, like you want to have all systems ready to go and you're on high alert and you're focused and you're ready to just hit the ground running. That's, that's a good activation. But if your sympathetic nervous system, if your sympathetic activation continues down that path, we know that that eventually goes into from like excitement and alertness to fear, fight or flight and possibly freeze. And so for people who are not familiar with writing in a group, it goes pretty quickly from that positive activation into fear. And that's where you start getting into that fight or flight situation. And that's where you start to make bad decisions and it's not really your fault. It's really your autonomic nervous system taking over and trying to make sure that you survive the situation. So if we take that perspective of it, one of the things you can work on without being in a group is training your autonomic nervous system to view or interpret some of those stimuli as safe. So one of the things you can do is 
find a piece of music that's really actually soothing to you. So not a pump up jam, not something that you're going to want to use for a hardcore interval section session. Um, something that actually really makes you feel super calm and at ease, play that music and watch some race videos. Watch those point of view videos where somebody's like really in the thick of a race and they're deep in the group and they're moving through the field. Um, and what that's going to do is your brain is going to be taking in this visual information, this visual stimuli at the same time as your brain is getting this message from the music that everything's calm, you're safe, everything is fine. And you'll create an association with those visual stimuli that that is a safe thing. And so when you're in that situation, finally, when you can race, your autonomic nervous system isn't immediately going to go, whoa, this is super unsafe. And we're freaking out. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it's one of the things that you can do to kind of prime your system to not go so quickly into fear. And that'll give you a little bit more space to think through what's happening, to get, to be, um, kind of in that learning zone that we've talked about and, and to be able to think through some of the stuff that we're talking about, like protecting your front wheel, moving up two handlebars at a time, all of those things. So I would, I would start there just bunch of race videos in a really super calm, controlled state of mind. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that also you can really do with race videos, especially now since there's two or three bike races every single day to watch, um, <laughs> you can, um, no, it's, it's, uh, you can watch a race. And then what I want you to do is think about based on the scenario that you see right now, predict what you think is going to happen in the next 30 seconds, 60 seconds, five minutes, and at the end of the race. Um, and it's really, really good um, brain exercise to look at constantly analyze situations and then say, predict what you think will happen. And you can do it for the entire race. Um, and there's definitely some real value to looking at regular point of view videos that we have, whether it's or the Jiro. I mean, you can look, you can get something out of all of those. And it's just getting your bet your brain better at assessing what you think is going to happen um, because it's a skill. And as you get more confident and you're more correct, um, when you're in a race, you have a better chance of predicting what's going to happen in your race. And it makes you feel more in control and safer and more understanding. Um, and it's it's something that you can never be good enough at. Like you could you could do this for the rest of your life and you wouldn't you wouldn't be good enough. So. I think it's one of the really fun things about I really enjoy watching racing. And then I watch it when I'm on the trainer, too, because it's it's fun. I love I love just think even if I've seen the race before, you can notice something like usually I'll rewatch the beginning of the season once winter training comes around because you get to find more insight in, in all the races you've already watched and pick things out sooner. Um, There's two things that come to mind with this really quick is number one, pattern recognition. If you watch enough racing, you start to recognize patterns and then that helps. Like you can get faster by just watching racing. It's not going to make your FTP go up at all, <laughs> but it'll make you a better racer. And, and if you start to recognize those patterns, then it's almost becomes like, uh, just like Tetris, right? Like people start to recognize patterns and they're like, okay, if this is coming down now, it's like X, Y, and Z or like a Rubik's cube solver, the same thing. Like you recognize the pattern and then you have a plan of attack that you have in reserve and you don't even have to think about it. Then it becomes automatic. If you've built that up enough, 
The other thing, like I would encourage a lot of people to stop thinking of themselves as bad bike handlers and instead thinking of themselves as bad mind handlers. And I, cause I think that the basics of bike like handling are so simple. Amber says it all the time. Like if everybody could figure out just the, put all your darn weight on that outside <laughs> leg, when you go through a turn, like it, that will take care of so much. <laughs> and, and then like some basic things, it's really not that complex, but this is the problem. I crash on the mountain bike. And every time I look back at a crash, it's because I wasn't handling my mind. Right. Like it's some technique thing, but in every case, the reason I'm not in, in the right position on the bike with technique or something else, it's because I wasn't managing my mind well enough. Like that, that's the, the most successful, like Peter Sagan probably sees things relatively in slow motion to you and I. And the reason is because he's such an adept mind handler. Like he's very good at dropping all of the noise and just filtering out the true signal and just focusing on that. And, and so that is something that comes with experience, but this is a, a great way, Amber, like really is as abstract as that may seem of listening to music that puts you in a calm state and then can, then bringing in racing and onboarding that information. It's incredible. And like watching racing as much as possible. So really good things. I think it's ironically less about the technique drills and more about the mind drills that you can do for sure. I, I don't know, Ivy, if you have insight on that too, but yeah, I definitely have something to add, which is that, um, you know, to speak to what you mentioned about, um, uh, making those reactions and like using your brain when you're like sharpening your skills. Um, I think Matias should ride off road. Um, I mean, the skills don't exactly, translate um perfectly like if you're riding trail you, i mean you won't don't put all your weight on your outside foot you know they're not like the same and like if there are some like mellow dirt or like mellow gravel trails or roads that Matia can ride on it's just um part of having pack handling skills is like seeing and processing everything that's going on around you and when you ride off-road those elements are still there. They're not the same, but there's like things that you have to see and feel what's happening with your bike and react to them quickly that create that sense of, um, of learning to process information around you and physically react quickly. Mm. Yeah. Great points. Um, what do you say we jump into the rapid fire stuff? Then we'll jump back up to the question that we're going to have there. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, the rapid fire where we famously answer questions in a non rapid fire <laughs> fashion. <laughs> so, uh, this one actually, Pete, I feel like it has your name on it. Cause it's app slash device related, uh, says, should you do a spin down before your workout or after the warm up? Um, almost all trainers, almost all need to warm up a little bit. Um, so it depends if you're riding your trainer while you're setting up your workout. Um, most of them seem to say between five and 10 minutes. So make sure that you're pedaling to get it up to temp spec. Um, but just always do a spin down, um, pick a time that it works and just adhere to that. Always spin down, um, and always calibrate your power meter. Um, your life will be so much better. I can't say this enough. Like all of the weird stuff we see where you fail a workout or you're sweet power PRs. Um, sometimes it's not you. Um, and, <laughs> and you can, you can fix this by just calibrating and doing spin downs every time. Mm -hmm. And, and also with a new iOS app that's coming out and upcoming Android app as well, there's some really cool stuff where it's a shortcut actually for you to be able to spin down and do that very easily uh, that are coming into it. So if you want to beta test that, go to the train road forum, you can check it out. Yep. And it's just a link you can just join. Um, we're no, uh, you just 
click the click the link and you get direct access so you can do it right before your ride um, and we always need more need more beta riders so please do some workouts uh, and let us know what you think yeah it's awesome and you can even like when you tap on devices it gives you a shortcut to be able to spin down so if you do it every time after the warm-up do it then if you do it every time before your ride do it then just make it consistent Okay, following up on last week's, and I'm going to add in on this one, extremely important bottle hand question. <laughs> he says, I use my left hand to drink. And then says, which foot do you have forward when you ride? I have my left foot forward. I'm going to have to think about this. I, I already know, actually. And I think it's actually directly correlated to skateboarding stance as well, I think. But I could be wrong. Yeah, which, which foot do you kick your kickflip with? Uh, I kick my kickflip with my right foot. And, and that's right the same foot that I have forward. Done. I'm a left foot kicker and, and a left foot forward. Amber, how about you? Yeah, Amber, which foot do you kickflip with? <laughs> I, <laughs> I have ridden a skateboard. I have not done a kickflip. Um, I'm a little bit weird. I'm left foot forward on the skateboard, but I'm right foot forward on the mountain bike. And I unclip with my left foot. So I'm all over the map. I don't know. Whoa. Yeah, I unclip with my left foot, but I have my right foot forward. Oh man, we're getting into the weeds. This is great. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> right foot forward, unclip with my left. Wait, and do you guys I always know what unclip? Ivy's kick flip is. <laughs> do you always? Oh, my kick flip happens on the ground uh, in general. So no foot forward. <laughs> Which foot do you have forward, Ivy? Uh, to clarify, we're talking about descending on the mountain bike, right? Mountain or bike. like off-road, I'm assuming. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I ride with my right foot forward. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess this is a question about like, which is efficient or what is better or what should you work on or like, do you change them? And um, it's a purely ridiculous question. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> yeah. like bottle handling. Uh, so there's, yeah. a, <laughs> there's a lot is to it, be said it, for like switching and training and like making sure you're comfortable doing both. But yeah, you brought, you brought up a good story with this one. Actually, Ivy, you should, do you need me to say it? Yes. Oh, no. Please do it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a very, um, accomplished, uh, riding buddy here in town. I live in Missoula, Montana and the trails here are immaculate and wonderful and so fun. And, um, yeah, I have a buddy that's really very, very good. Um, and it's one left a handful of times, national champion a few times, like you know. Olympian yeah. or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I asked this question to him the other day because, um, I got a new, um, got a new XC bike and I, it's hard to get used to any new bike. Like there's just, it, even if it's like same build, same geo, like it just feels different. It's just different. And I was like super over examining like everything that I was doing. And I was like, Hey, I always descend with my right foot forward. And I was like, Hey man, like, do you always like, do you, do you switch? Just curious. Like, do you train them both? Do you always whatever? Um, and he was like, Oh yeah, I usually ride this foot forward. But when I like, when I'm working with Devo kids and coaching kids, or when I ride with you and we're going slow, I just switch it just to practice. And I'm like, oh man, like, I don't know, I'm that slow, bummer. And so yeah, I guess you can on like easier days. It was it was out of love. It was totally yeah, it was fine. But yeah, I guess on easier days, that's something that you could and should practice is like adapting to having hmm. both feet forward. Yeah. 
Pete, you were going to say something. No, I was going to derail it so badly that we, we could we could re, we could rewind and pretend I didn't we're in the, try to. Derail we're in the it. weeds. Let's go into those weeds. Let's get even deeper. Well, so I was going to say, does does everyone descend with their road foot and mountain bike foot same foot forward? Yes, I do. You know, I've actually had to switch it up at times because of trail features. I know that sounds yeah. weird. But a trailing foot catches uh, an object easier than a leading foot. And what I mean by that is if you have a stump or a rock by you, it's more commonly going to hit your trailing foot than your leading foot because of the fact that you have so you have a, a long boy bike behind that front wheel, right? Like <laughs> there's a lot going on behind it and not much in front. So uh, I've actually had situations where I've had to switch feet because of, and, and throw my left foot forward to dodge, whether it's a rock or a stump, one, a uh, thing like that. Um, and it does feel very strange, extremely strange. Can't get like, used to it. Like drinking with your wrong hand. I, I mean, <laughs> wrong is a little too objective for me, Pete. So, uh, okay. Next one says you all regularly talk about carbohydrate intake for cycling events around 90 grams an hour. Recently, Amber talked about fueling for various times and gave a recommendation of about 300 calories per hour. As I begin to look, uh, as I began to look, I noticed that the rate of calories versus carbs and foods can differ. And clearly because, you know, when you're talking about carbs versus you know, if you're eating a gigantic donut, there's quite a lot of calories that come from things that are not carbs <laughs> mm -hmm. from fat, right. And from plenty of other things that we could take in. So he says in planning for rides, in my case, a 14 hour ultra endurance solo ride, yikes. Uh, how should I think about fueling in each category, calories and carbs? Thanks for amazing products, uh, podcasts and product. I, I kind of have an answer for this one that for a longer event, you probably want to take into consideration more of instead of just carbohydrate, because you're probably operating at a lower intensity. Would you agree, Amber? But for yeah, shorter definitely. stuff, probably just focus on carbs. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about fueling, we're talking about kind of trainer road style workouts where you're doing intense interval training. And by intense, I mean, you know, anything that's going to be above an endurance pace, um, which is most interval training. And so if you're doing a two or three hour ride with intervals, you definitely want to focus your fuel intake on carbohydrates specifically for a 14 hour ultra endurance ride. That's, that's a little different. You're probably going to want to need, want to take in something more than carbohydrate. Um, yeah. That's, that's kind of, I probably I track them individually <laughs> as nerdy as this sounds. I would be like tracking my carbs, tracking my fat, tracking protein, and trying to figure out how my body deals with that when I train. So then that way on the big day, when mm -hmm. you're doing your 14 hour, uh, sort of thing, you know that, okay, well I can tolerate 90 grams per hour of carbs, but I can't tolerate more than 15 grams of fat. Who knows? You know, I'm just throwing out numbers, but for me in the sort of racing I do, it's just carbs. Uh, so I only calculate grams of carbs and I don't even look at calories, but it's because I, I'm a wuss and only do short races. So, um, <laughs> my next one, how important is structured interval training for running in the off season? If I'm not looking to get faster on the run, I'm a pure roadie, Sam, first of all, Sam back away from running. Uh, we need a hotline for this sort of a thing. <laughs> he's, a, he's a cyclist and he's on the precipice and he's thinking of running. Uh, it only ends in tears. I can already say that after running two times this week, uh, it's already hard, but, um, so, uh, in, in all seriousness though, I'm, I'm actually starting my, so our triathlon challenge that's going to happen in 2022 now, because things have been pushed back a year. I've actually started running already and my plan is to run one to two days a week for the rest of the year. And I am keep, it's so hard to run slow 
and so hard to run short. Like, cause you run for 15 minutes and you're like, I guess that's all I do. Cause you're used to doing more, but then the next day your body's like, yeah, that's, that's way too much. You shouldn't have even done 15 minutes. So, um, but I'm trying to do that with the intent that hopefully once I actually start running, I have built up some sort of resilience and strength and, and coordination with that sort of thing so that I can avoid injury. Um, but how important is structured interval training for running in the off season? It depends on your goals. If you have no goals, don't do it. Like, uh, don't do interval training, just enjoy the run but just try to force yourself to not run fast and try to force yourself not to run to fatigue in whichever way you do it, whether it's speed or anything else. So cyclists beware of running. Um, okay. Last one. This is a question for Jonathan. You mentioned multiple times that you lived in Chile. What did you do there? Where did you live and what kind of riding did you do? Do you have any recommendations? And he says, I reckon you got to know anti-grip really well, which is how they refer to the dirt there because it's like, uh, it's just insanely slippery stuff. Um, but I've never ridden it actually. So he says, and you mentioned in the insanity that is downhill racing in Valparaiso. So I'm lucky enough to get to visit Chile once per year on business. And he says, and riding in Chile, Chile is amazing. So uh, I didn't want to include this one, but then I realized that I actually have a pretty, um, embarrassing, I guess, funny story that I should share about bikes. So I was a church missionary for the LDS church in, in, or the Mormon church, as many people know it down in Chile. I don't talk about this much on the podcast because I try to keep everything separate there, but, uh, you go, you'll get to laugh at me for this one. So we all kind of laugh at Mormon missionaries. I know a lot of people do riding on their bikes. It's like, it's like an icon, at least here in the United States. It's like a popular Halloween costume even. Right. So, uh, I was that guy, but we didn't have bikes in almost any place because you would get robbed and your bike would get stolen in wherever we live for sure. Like you would never even dream of riding a bicycle. We, we didn't even carry more than a dollar with us because we got held up enough that it would always get stolen from us. So it was not like that. Then we went out to this middle of nowhere, living like extremely far out from everybody in between Santiago and the coastline in this farm country. And I had a, a Walmart bike, but a Chilean Walmart bike from a place called Lider. So it was like, a terrible bike. And I it, like, this is before I even rode bikes, but I like got on the bike and I was like, yeah, I know how to suffer and everything. And this is going to be really hard. And it was a huge area. So we rode 13 miles, which at that time I was like, I'm basically doing the tour de France. I had no clue. <laughs> uh, so we rode 13 miles. We get way out there and I had a Peruvian companion. He was super small on this really big bike and poor guy. We get way out there and he was exhausted we go to pull into this person's like, uh, the, the farm where they lived and I applied front brake for the first time. And when I touched my front brake, the, the front wheel was just like a, a flour tortilla, just instantly the front wheel just completely <gasps> folded over on me. And I just did a full face plant oh. missionary bike helmet, all crooked. <laughs> it was so bad. And I looked, I mean, I was like, well, we're here, so it's fine. I'll just leave it tacoed and just kind of leave my bike there. Got done with, with helping the folks out after that went to go get back on the bike with a tacoed wheel. So I just kind of stood on it and, and like lifted my bike up and the wheel just very easily folded back into a straight shape. <laughs> so I was like, great, it's fine. And I got on the bike and I made like four more revolutions. And then I landed on my face again, cause it tacoed again. So, and then I got to preview my cycling, my cyclocross experience. And I got to carry a bike for 13 miles in church shoes. So it was great. Uh, that was me. <laughs> That was my so bike experience. What in Chile. you're saying is bro science in its application has very early beginnings for you. One hundred percent. Long before I ever knew I was gonna be a cyclist either. So. 
but just if if you ever feel like you're having a rough day, think of think of pre-cycling Jonathan in dress shoes and and a suit in really hot Chile carrying a tacoed Walmart bike <laughs> from a Chilean Walmart. So that was me. Okay, um, let's go back up here to Alex's question. He says. To give a bit of background, I'm 18. I've been doing road for a few years coming from an XC background, and I'll be on a continental race team next year. I average around 18 hours a week with 1,000 TSS on those weeks. That's a lot. He says, I've completed around 630 hours so far this year. I weigh 66 kilograms and 183 centimeters and have an FTP of 375 watts. So that puts him once again at 5.7 watts per kilogram. How in the world do we have two people at 5.7 <laughs> watts per kilogram riding in this week? That's crazy. Uh, so he says, my coach gives me a structure of three to two weeks on followed by a recovery week. And the week is structured with three sessions in a row with a recovery session in between. So he says the question that I have, um, I've found this consistent pattern where after three days of recovery, I go back quite drastically with my fitness. An example being this last recovery week where I've had two days completely off with two very light days. And I just did a ramp test and scored 332 Watts. It's a 40 watt loss. And he has exclamation points. He says, not only that, but I actually felt terrible too. Am I the only one or is this a common thing? And why do I lose so much? He says, I'm not kidding. This keeps happening after every recovery week that I have like this <laughs> sounds like a terrible groundhog day. <laughs> he says, I've also noticed that some of my best performances are when I carry quite a bit of fatigue. Like I've done a moderately hard ride the day before or have had a hard week overall. So why is this? I'd like to know how to balance this. So when I do some stage races overseas next year, I can make sure I'm in form when my team needs me. Thanks. You all are legends. Um, so it's not uncommon, right? Pete to feel slow after yeah. recovery. Week. <clears throat> I'm this is, this hits home for me. Um, I'm for sure a, uh, rest <laughs> weeks feel the worst I've ever felt. And then the resulting workouts also feel even worse than that. So um, I'm, I have, the, I'm in the same boat and what I've done is over time I've adjusted my training so that if there's anything I really care about or important workouts or races, I always make sure those are two or three weeks into my training blocks. Um, and definitely, uh, big races. I always do a week of medium hard training beforehand and kind of roll into it. Um, and I think that's not super uncommon, um, but everybody's different and fine tuning the way you feel is super important to figure these things out. Now you're lucky that you're figuring it out when you're 18. I think we talk about <laughs> some, some things later, but, uh, it's, it's really important to figure out what works for you. Um, and that also isn't set in stone. Things change over time. So starting now and feeling out what works, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Some of my best power numbers and best results are after horrendous, horrendous weeks of racing and training. So, um, it's just I how saw, it works. I saw an inspirational tweet this morning that was made for you. And I was thinking about this question when I saw it, it was incredible. Um, sorry, this is probably cheesy for some people, but, uh, <laughs> some guy named Steven Bartlett on Twitter, I have no clue who it is. He says, you wouldn't plant a seed and then dig it up every few minutes to see if it's grown. <laughs> so why do you keep questioning yourself, your hard work and your decisions have patience, stop overthinking and keep watering your seeds. Mm. I was like, Whoa, answer done right there. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And it's so true though. Uh, because we do this right. Like all of us where like, if we could, it's so good that, that in most cases, testing FTP is hard because we probably do it way too often. If it was like, you know, easier came with no cost, we'd be like, 
okay, I just did five steps. Let's see if it changed. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, let's see if that really draining day at work changed. You know, like we constantly be doing that when really like, like, let's take a step back. If we have confidence in the approach that we have, if there's science-based principles guiding our training and we're doing the hard work, we need to trust in that. And we need to trust in our own hard work and making sure that happens. Like there, there is a big value in being even keeled with this and not letting yourself get super high and super low nonstop. Because if you do that, wow, it, it's just an, it's an exhausting way to live. And, and you find yourself just kind of like calling yourself into, into question all the time with that. So, um, and another thing to remember is within the training process, you will have bad and good days, but, and we kind of talked about this Ivy, like the numbers in many cases prove that to us, but the numbers don't define you. Right. Yeah. And what Alex is saying and feeling super resonates, like all of us who have been competitive or even just being like a human that's alive. Like we, we have so many opportunities to like measure what our worth is. And like, especially in cycling, like all of this data is available for us. Like people with fitness trackers can learn like exactly like to the T how much they've recovered and like where they've fallen short. And like, I mean, I think it's important for Alex and I mean, in my experience, like a way to feel balanced about cycling and racing and to like do it in, on a lifelong scale is to know that those num numbers are just a metric of what you need to do, not who you are and what you're worth or, and not even a measure of your performance, because like we've talked about, like successful racing is so much more than just your fitness. Um, and like, you know, it really is just a tool, like having a really sharp knife doesn't make me a chef. Like there's so many other facets mm -hmm. that go into racing and like, we can look at all of these other things and hyper examine them. And ultimately we have to understand that that's like not how we are measured as competitive cyclists comprehensively. Mm. There's like, uh, it's so important to have that in mind and to also think of this in the sense that you've probably noticed that it's worked in the past when you just committed to the training and you followed through with it and you did it well. So take confidence in that, right? Like, um, Jesse, one of our other copywriters mentioned in the planning meeting, he's like, I wish, cause he was, so he played like college football and he's been through an athletic ringer in his life, tons of different things he's done. And he's like, I wish I could go back with the knowledge I have about myself. And largely it's like, and tell yourself to calm down, you know, mm -hmm. like, it's interesting. Like we get slower as we get older, but our wisdom gets so much better and we, we know ourselves better. So if anything, that's, that's why we implement like a structured process of structured training into things that's based on science is so then that way, that's a constant that we can then work with and rely upon. If you're constantly questioning it, it's probably not going to make you faster just because you're going to hold yourself back from ever getting to the point where it does make you faster. Um, it's pretty tough. I'm sure you've experienced it too, right? Amber. Yeah, I've, I've definitely. I do okay with rest. I don't have as much of a problem coming off complete rest, but I've definitely noticed that there are times where I'll end up having a couple races back to back and I feel surprisingly good after a really hard day the day before. Um, and I really like what Ivy, what you just said about having a sharp knife doesn't make you a chef because it's so true. And a true chef doesn't necessarily need a sharp knife 
to do amazing work. And if you're going to be on a pro Conti team, I think that what Jonathan and Pete and Ivy were saying is so important about keeping an even keel, because if you put too much stock in a bad day, you're going to get really discouraged and a bad day is a temporary thing. And it might just be that two days later, you're going to be on fire. But if you put so much stock in that bad day that you're not mentally prepared to capitalize on this amazing day that's coming, you'll miss that opportunity. And likewise, if you put too much stock in a really amazing day, you might feel you might end up being complacent about the work that you're doing or the focus that you're going to need for the next race. Um, being on a Conti team means that you're going to have to do races when you are not feeling good. You're going to have to do races when you are dog tired. You're going to have to do races when you feel really flat and you're going to have to find a way to get the job done no matter what. So they might hand you adult, they might hand you a butter knife and you got to make something out of that. Right? So cultivating a mindset where you just get in there and you problem solve and you race and you, you practice racecraft and you figure out how to make the best of what you've got on the day. That's where it's really going to make a big difference. Um, mm. and I think that it, that's, that's the mental approach. And then, um, I had another note in here too. Learning this too is, is, is important because if you are going to be tapering for a big event, you, you mentioned doing some of these bigger races and that you want to make sure that you're preparing yourself appropriately. There were definitely times where I would do, um, three stage races back to back. And I would know that, okay, I'm going to be in a really deep hole at the end of that block of racing. So I'm going to rest a lot going into it, which means I'm going to be a little bit flat for that first part of that first stage race, but it's going to be worth it because when that turns around some toward sometime towards the end of the first stage race, then I'm going to be really good through the second and the third stage race. And so learning, learning this about your body and knowing what works for you is, is super important because then you can apply that to the race calendar that let's be honest, it's going to be given to you. <laughs> you're not going to get to pick what you want to do. They're going to tell you, this is where you're going to go. And this is what you're going to do. Um, knowing that about yourself is going to be really valuable, but again, mentally getting into a space where, okay, it's I'm no matter what I've got on the start line today, I'm going to give it a hundred percent of whatever that is. And I'm going to find a way to do the job that's been assigned to me. Mm. That's a tons of investing parallels with that too. Like, and, and also like you want to be careful about the stock that you put in a good day too. <laughs> Because many times that can set unrealistic expectations for yourself. And you're just like, well, this is the new me because I had one really good day when really it's, you know, you, in, you invest wisely, right? Like you learn from the bad days, you take everything out that you can and you learn from it. And then, and you also, but you don't take out what you're committed to. Like, you know, uh, the, the worst investors always pull out as soon as they see things dropping down really hard like that. Whereas in most cases, it's even shown that if you were to stick with it, then you'll be able to get more value out of things. So don't remove yourself from the process that got you to where you are. And at the same time, don't get too high on your own performances and set unrealistic expectations for yourself if they're really good, because a bad day is also always around the corner. It happens. What really good athletes, and I'm sure Amber, you're yeah, from, I'm sure your athletes would speak to this, but your consistency and able to manage that is, is a huge strength to have, not just for a team, but also for an athlete in general. So, uh, Steve's question, this will be the last one. And then we'll, if we have time, we'll go into some, uh, some live questions. Okay. He says, Hey gang, love the podcast. I've been using trainer road for two and a half years now, and the consistency and use of an actual plan has been the biggest help for me. Good to hear. 
It says I'm five foot nine inches and 150 pounds. So that puts me around 3.8 watts per kilogram. I didn't begin racing until my late forties and have been a competitive athlete my whole life. Uh, he says, uh, or having been a competitive athlete his whole life, I was able to have some early success in the masters four to five categories. However, since upgrading to cat three, my natural abilities no longer did the trick <laughs> and joining trainer road. <laughs> That's a great line right there. <laughs> yeah. We've all felt that too. <clears throat> like, like it was like, if you watch Nate's cat five to, to two in a year, sort of a thing, he was like a 370 watt FTP racing cat fives. It was like, it was just a joke. Like he was. He was basically playing like basketball with a bunch of toddlers. Uh, so <laughs> like just stopping the balls everywhere. Right. Uh, so it happens to all of us, uh, Steve, don't worry about that. He says, I can frequently crack the top 10 in crits because I have a very good snap sprint, but road racing and TTs are where I struggle immensely. I can hit every workout with one minute or less VO two max efforts sometimes easily but I really struggle for long intervals. Quite frankly, I'm not very good at suffering through pain in the longer intervals. Do I just need to toughen up and learn to suffer? Or is there a different approach to increasing my sustained power that will help me? Thanks for what you do. So that's a, I mean, it's, it's really tough because well, no pun intended there, but we use, we use the word, we use the phrase toughen up, but it's so inspecific all the time. And we use it with ourselves probably a lot when we're training and we're not doing well. And it's like, come on, tough through it, toughen up, that sort of a thing. So we want to, we kind of want to, we want to try to break that down and make kind of a guide, I guess, to toughening up if, if we could. Um, one thing I will say though, just for, for you, Steve, you're probably still in the process of learning everything that we talked about with not getting boxed in and learning efficiency in the group and getting used to the mental load. Your efficiency will make up for a lack, any lack of natural ability. Um, I even, I've seen Pete race when Pete is far from peak fitness before. And I'm like, gosh, dang it. How is he doing that? Like he's able to get away with so much without being like in prime form. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yep. Um, it's that, it's that disciplined approach of knowing what you're doing and that efficiency that you build. So, so, so don't worry, Steve, it's not, I mean, the reason I'm saying this is it's not like you're at a point now where it's entirely based upon fitness. You have a lot of areas to improve and you'll be able to improve for a really long time. So don't worry about that. It's not just down to a watt KG game. It's not, that's not the, all that it's down to. Um, but okay. So saying toughen up isn't very helpful <laughs> for anybody. <laughs> so maybe we can kind of talk about ways to increase your ability to tolerate that sort of work. Cause I, I don't care who you are. Long intervals are hard. Mm. And if they're not hard, maybe your FTP is too low, right? Like, like they should be hard. And if you train and do them all the time, then you kind of get used to it, but they're still hard. They're never easy. It's a very unique brand of suffering, right, Pete? Yeah. <clears throat> and Steve, I'm, I feel your pain. Um, if it's a 30 second effort, I could probably do it forever. And if it's longer than 10 minutes, man, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. So mm. I've done the same thing as you, but rewind a, a couple years. Um, but I, I definitely did the same thing where I just wasn't good at sustained efforts and you kind of just take the smallest bite-sized chunk of an increase as you can each time. And even yet, so this year is kind of funny. Um, I did some 20 minute intervals yesterday as just like, whew, just out of the blue. Okay. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was on, it was on my training plan. So, um, I went so for you it. Did it. So I did it. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm much more comfortable now. And it started with you know, five and six minute efforts and then eight minute efforts and then 10 minute efforts and then 12 minute efforts. And it's, it's kind of becoming familiar with a new, uh, 
pain or un- uncomfort or discomfort, however you want to think about it. Um, but pain, pain during a sub 60 second effort is so different. Um, it's mm-hmm. this like, like death by a thousand paper cuts thing that feels that's hard to wrap your head around, but getting familiar, familiar with what that feels like and just extending the time durations that you're doing these, that is, it's going to change how you are as a person. And it'll also change the way you race. Um, so it's the smallest steps you can take is a great way to think about it. It's almost like an intentional progression through energy systems to help you get faster, like a training plan from trainer road. You would think so. Amazing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's intentional. It's how it works. It's how, that's how coach Chad designs them. Uh, and, and how we constantly tweak them to see if we found a spot where, Hey, this is too big of a gap for an athlete. And we're seeing that athletes are not able to then complete this. It's too big of a jump from this duration to this duration or too little of a rest, that sort of a thing. We're constantly analyzing that and making the improvements to the training plan. So it is kind of about that. Um, and, and this, even though I, I, and I have these notes kind of indicated for myself, but Amber in particular, uh, and, and even Ivy, you've mentioned this before too. Um, so actually we'll go to Ivy on this. There's a lot to be said for preparing yourself for the discomfort too, right? Like if it surprises you, it hurts so much worse. <laughs> yeah. Like if you tell yourself, it's not going to hurt. I can do this. And then it hurts. It hurts way worse. I, I feel like, um, like the hippie mom, that's just like, I want everyone to love themselves. But like, I really <laughs> just want Steve to like, you know, be gentle on himself with this. And like, you really do like the more that you, um, yeah, feel prepared for those efforts. And like a lot of that comes from, racing and like I um I struggle with longer efforts more than um a minute or so because I have really bad ADD and like I can't focus on like what that effort should look like should it be longer than like a minute like and it's been so hard to mitigate and like I think that's something that's helped for me that could be applied to like the physical aspect of like understanding that it's going to hurt, um, is like thinking of those race scenarios, um, specifically, or like thinking of a climb, like when you're doing an effort on the trainer specifically, like thinking of what that suffering feels like in real life, um, or in a race scenario prepared me mentally for doing the effort and training. Mm. Yeah. And that's like the, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about that too, or like they, they, some people feel like they need the, the, the racing to get that sort of familiarity. And I I would say that at least with the plans that we develop, I feel like if you follow through with the specialty plan, I've always felt if I follow through with it, doesn't mean that it's not hard in the whole training process. I come across really hard things, but actually like on race day, if I followed through with the specialty plan and gotten there, the race, I've always felt like, oh, I'm totally prepared for this because I've had, you know, 160 workouts that I've done prior to this where I've been like, this is going to hurt. <laughs> and I get ready for it and I do it and it hurts. But then I tell myself, hey, you did it. So I've like built up this credit with myself where I'm like, hey, you can do things. So go ahead and let yourself do it, you know? And then on race day, it's actually not as bad. Um, but then one thing that we actually was brought up in our planning meeting with this is, remembering the why beforehand. So like, cause especially with long intervals, there's just so many seconds and each second is a new opportunity to quit. And if you think of it in that <laughs> regard, you will quit. <laughs> so, <laughs> but if, if you, if you go about this from the perspective of beforehand thinking like, okay, why am I doing this workout? 
It's because it's going to build the muscular endurance I need. It's going to build the aerobic conditioning that I need, whatever it is. It's going to build what I need for my bigger why. Whether that's a race, whether that's just something that you really, really want to prove to yourself that you can do something, whatever you're doing, you probably have a bigger why. And instead of thinking those in the, of those in the moment when it gets hard, because everything is skewed and we're irrational decision makers in that, mo in that moment and highly emotional, think of it beforehand and commit. Uh, actually, Alex really says a great thing about this. He says, commit to pressing the lap button. He doesn't commit once he's in the interval, he commits beforehand. Like, he's like, I'm just, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do my best. I know I can do this. I can get through it. So really so much of it, I feel like is prepping yourself beforehand. You can't lie to yourself and tell yourself you're going to breeze through it because then you'll be disappointed because you won't breeze through it. It's hard work. But if you tell yourself beforehand, I can like, this is what I'm up against. It, yes, it will be uncomfortable, but look back at what you've done and look at what you're trying to accomplish. And then I feel like that's a really helpful thing for me. Uh, do you have uh, helpful tips, Amber, on this one? Yeah. I, one of the things I want to make sure that we address is, um, in context of a race and what you're talking about is feeling like you can't really hang in the race. It's a different mental game in the race, but there are things that you can do to train this. So the first thing to keep to, I think the key takeaway here is mental toughness is a skill. It's not something that anyone's born with. This is something that you can train, you can learn, and you can constantly get better at this. So don't, you know, whatever story that you have in your mind right now, the story that you're telling yourself that you're not good at suffering, it's bogus. Um, it's worth doing a quick internet search on fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Cause I think oftentimes we tell ourselves stories about ourselves that become ingrained and it creates this fixed mindset. Like, Oh, I'm just not good at suffering. That just means, you know, that's a statement about your innate ability and potential, which isn't true. The truth is mental toughness is a skill. It's something that you learn. And the more you practice, you get better at it the same way as we make and grow stronger, stronger muscles, <laughs> just because you're not good at it now. doesn't mean you can't be good at it in the future. So adopting more of a growth mindset around this and saying, okay, this is something that I want to work on with intention and get better at. So that's the first step. And then when you're in a race situation, it's a little bit different because there's a mind game, right? Of, you have to remember that if the race is going really hard, it's hard for everybody around you. And they cannot, even though your mind is like, oh my God, they're going to keep at this pace forever. <laughs> not possible. Like it's just not it's possible. It's so weird that we do that, right? Right. Like <laughs> this is the new pace for the rest of the race. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, why are we doing that? Like we know that is not true. <laughs> we know that it's always going to slow down. Right. Right. So you can kind of, you can kind of play this little chicken game in your mind in the race and just be like, okay, I just need to last a split second longer than everybody around me. And when you do that, it's the coolest feeling, but just, you have to remember in your mind, like this is hurting everyone else. Not everybody else can hold this pace forever either. It will slow down. And all I have to do is hang on till it slows down. And man, everybody's going to look around at you and go, whoa, <laughs> but mm -hmm. So that's in the racing context. Some of the things you can do in training, that's a little bit different because you're not in a pack and you're not kind of waiting for the field to slow down. And you know, this is a 20 minute effort. <laughs> that can be a little bit harder because you know you're stuck in this for 20 minutes and it's not like, oh, it's gonna slow down in just a few seconds. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so this is a great opportunity to train the mental toughness component. And uh, some things that I 
have worked for me that I like to try. And this is just something, again, experiment, figure out what works for you, come up with a few, few tools that you find really work for you. And then you can use those in a race when the going gets really tough. So a couple things that I like to do with intervals is I, I, I really like to break each interval up into smaller chunks. So if you're on the trainer, you can just say, and let's say it's a 20 minute effort to say, okay, I know I can hold this for at least five minutes five minutes, a hundred percent. So you just commit to that five minutes. And then when you're five minutes in, you're like, well, I just did five minutes. I'm not dead yet. Actually, I say that to myself a lot during workouts. Yes. <laughs> not dead yet. Still alive. <laughs> still alive. Still here. <laughs> and then, you know, do the next five minutes. And then sometimes, um, I, I, I like to break things up too. And then like, I'll be like, okay, I just need to get to five minutes. And then halfway through that five minutes, I'm like two and a half minutes and I can happy halfway to the first five minutes mm -hmm. of 20, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can, you can really break those up. Um, and then breaking up a 20 minute effort to uh, different ways of doing that is switching up your cadence. So like mm -hmm. within the 20 minutes, you can do five minutes at a 75 cadence and then five minutes at a hundred cadence and switch back and forth like that, or try seated versus standing. Those are all ways that you can mentally break it up. And then if you have to break it up like that, but then you complete the effort at the end of that, now, you know, you're physically capable of sustaining this power for 20 minutes and that's going to build your confidence. Yeah. Jonathan. Yeah, we've anticipated this too. We know from feedback from athletes and everything else that when you start off with sweet spot base and you're using trainer road, that it's a shock to the system. Suddenly you're like, whoa, this is hard. <laughs> I have to do this sustained work because when we don't follow structured interval work, we usually don't do a lot of sustained work. We pedal hard when we make hay when the sun shines, right? Like we pedal hard when we got a tailwind and we grab that KOM sort of a thing or just for a short little effort, but then we usually don't stay on it. So that's why you'll see in the workout text, like Chad's put in so much effort into those, into breaking up those intervals and whether it's focusing on a different quadrant of your pedal stroke, changing your cadence, like Amber said, seated versus standing. Even you'll notice in some of the workout texts, Chad will have you look at different areas too. He's like, focus straight ahead, look ahead, like you're going down the road. Now let yourself relax for the next 30 seconds. Now focus ahead. Like it's all those little cues to like change things up like that. And because it's the, the mind fatigues, kind of like what you said on, um, Ivy is the mind fatigues many times before the body fatigues. So if you can find ways to keep your mind engaged slash maybe perhaps disconnected, uh, also can be helpful depending on, on what sort of athlete you are, then you can surprise yourself physically with what you're able to do. If you can kind of take decouple those two a little bit. So sorry, yeah. Amber for interrupting. I just, the no, workout text is super helpful for that. And Definitely. so if you see that turn the workout text on, follow that and it'll, you'll surprise yourself with that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you can do this stuff. If you're doing an outside workout, you can, and you know, you're on a stretch road, you can just say, okay, I know I can get to that tree. I know I can get to that fire hydrant. I do this during time trials all the time. Or if yes. I'm in a breakaway where I'm really suffering, I'm just like, okay, telephone pole, next telephone pole, got this. And, and breaking it up into those smaller chunks, you're like, yeah, I can definitely make it to that telephone pole. But if you're thinking about, can I make it for the next 30 minutes? Eh, <laughs> yeah. Not so sure about yeah. that, but you just break it down into, into chunks where you feel really confident in your ability to handle that. Another way to break things up is to count. So, um, I do this a lot during VO two efforts is I'll count to 10 or I'll count backwards from 10. For some reason, it feels like it goes faster. If I count backwards, I'm weird. <laughs> it feels like I'm pedaling downhill for some reason, as opposed to going uphill. I don't know. But like I'll count backwards from 10, um, I'll it's count backwards. So it's forwards. It makes right. sense to it me. Yeah. yeah. Sense, backwards. Right? So it's forwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
so I'll count pedal strokes or I'll time my breathing in my pedal strokes or I'll count breaths. Um, and that just like, okay, just count to 10. All right. I can, I can make it through a count to 10. I can make it through another count to 10. I can make it through another count to 10. Sometimes I have to stop it and just say, okay, I can make it to a count of four. I can do another count of four, but just breaking it up. And even if you just eat by five seconds, 10 seconds at a time, you can get through a really long interval like that. Um, mm -hmm. especially this is another good one for time trialing is focusing on using different muscles. Like Jonathan just mentioned this. Can you put out the same amount of power using mostly glutes, maybe focusing on hamstrings, maybe focusing on that bottom part of the pedal stroke. And those little subtle differences in focus can help you kind of distribute the load across all of those bigger muscle groups and fatigue. And it's also a nice focus for your brain. Um, music is a great one in training, especially on the trainer, pick a song that you really like that gets you pumped up, that you feel good and maybe pedal along to the beat of the music or stand up for every chorus or whatever it is, whatever gets you through that 20 minute, 30 minute interval, bam, now, you know, you can do it and you can carry that confidence forward. Um, I, I like to just, sometimes I'll just check in with myself. Like I said, uh, I'll say to myself, you know, not dead yet. I use that as a mantra sometimes. Cause it's mm -hmm. kind of this reminder that like, yeah, this hurts, but like, how far are you actually from dying? Like very, <laughs> very far away from that. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of like a yeah. quick little like perspective check. And I like to use that mantra. Mantras are also great because it keeps your brain focused on whatever the phrase of the mantra is. And that's not focused on the pain of what's going on. Another good one is like, these are just sensations. Like, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but it's just a sensation. Mm -hmm. It's going to pass. Like it's just a sensation. And it's not even really that bad when you focus on it. Um, mm -hmm. and you can experiment with all of these different things and see what works for you. And the goal really is just to establish that you're capable and successfully get through each of those intervals. And the more of those that you successfully get through, the better your confidence is going to be. And that is how you build mental toughness as a skill. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. It's about showing up or committing to something, following through with it, and it has to be a manageable thing. And then repeating that. That's how you build confidence, right? Pete, uh, sorry to cut you off. No, I, I just, that, that's the one that gets me through almost all my workouts, honestly, is getting through the first one. And I know that if I make it through the first one, um, I can make it through the next five weeks, probably, right? Like it's, it's only up here. If I quit, it's it's because my brain didn't want to do it. It's not because my legs didn't want to do it. Um, and I, I, I always have problems. Um, the trainer is it's so easy to get off, right? Like it's there's distractions and there's everything. So for me, it's knowing that it's doable puts it in a different realm. And then all of a sudden having a doable workout and a doable workout and a doable workout. I just know that it's just me checking him off. And there's not that many weeks until it's time to perform. Like no matter the time of year, if there's 10 weeks or 12 weeks or 15 weeks, like that's not that long and that's not that many workouts. So if you start having workouts or skipping workouts, like you're going to take some of some of that underlying fire out. So I'm, it's really doable workouts. Just check them off one at a time and you know you can do it. Two points I wanted to add to this too is that remember with sustained work in particular, it actually is more possible than you think. Like th there's, you know, when you're running in really high intensity efforts and you've basically, you've depleted creatine phosphate and you're running on oxygen and you can only take in so much of that, there really is like a point where you can't keep going, right? But with the sustained work, especially like sweet spot work, you can do it way longer than you think. 
Yeah. And but it's this that limits it. So so number one to do that. Then the other point, and this is a huge one. We probably should have started with this, but <laughs> sustained work is so hard if you don't have enough fuel on board. Yeah. Like it's so much harder. You can do short work all day with like not a lot of fuel. You'll still do better with being able to repeat it and do everything else, but it's so much more pronounced with like long efforts. So one thing I'll do is crazy as this sounds, I know, but I know that I can take in about three gels an hour. Right. So if I have like a 15 minute interval, I also, I, I do a weird thing where I've trained myself to be able to take in all of that within a very short period of time. Cause for cross country racing, I like to just down that whole bottle of mix and drop it and not carry it with me in the feed zone every lap. So it's an applicable skill, not just a weird one, but during those intervals, it's, if it's a 15 minute interval and I know that last 15 is going to be really hard, I will have three gels and I'll at five minutes, I'll have one and another one I'll have another. And it's not because like the gel is something that's delicious and a treat for me. <laughs> it's because I'm trying to force myself to take in the fuel that I know I need. And it's crazy. Just that blood, when you get that blood sugar level going up, everything feels rosy and yeah. everything gets easier. And it's amazing. It just drops your RPE so much. So if you find yourself struggling with that, really lean on fueling. It can help mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, and cooling. Don't forget cooling. Oh, Between yes. those two, your your life, your training life will be so much easier if you've got a lot of airflow and you're staying relatively cool and you're fueling. All of a sudden, all the workouts feel, uh, like John said, rosy. Rosy workouts yeah. are, are in your future for sure. Yep. And that's in particular with sustained work. You generate so much heat because you're doing a lot of work, but there's no rest period. Right. So as a result, your body just, uh, like if you had an infrared camera, it'd just be glowing, right. Uh, the amount of heat that you put off. So yeah, uh, uh, heating, cooling, but then the mental side of things, there's so many, every workout is just an opportunity to prove to yourself that you can do more than you thought. Right. If you look at that, then you just end up making steps up a ladder and it's super cool. And then you'll look back and be super impressed. Like Pete didn't like sustained work and now he's doing 20 minute intervals and look at that. So, um, I still don't yeah, like I, them, but <laughs> <laughs> I do just want to make one comment too, that I, we mentioned before mental toughness is a skill and it can be learned and you can get better. Um, this is something that I feel like a lot of people buy into a fixed mindset with this. Like you're either tough or hardcore or you're not. And that is not true. It is so bogus. I used to get really down on myself because I'd hear about people who would do like eight hour trainer rides in a dark closet. Like mm. I am not that that's just not in the cards for me, but that doesn't mean that I'm not also capable of performing at a really high level. And if you need to use a mantra, if you need a really killer song or a playlist to get you through a workout, who cares? You got through it. You're still the one that did that work. You're still the one that swung a leg over the bike, committed to the workout and got through it. And you're physically capable, mentally capable of doing that thing. Take all the credit from that. Let that build confidence. Um, but you don't have to buy into this kind of hype attitude that, Oh, you're, you know, you're we somehow weaker if you have to use a playlist or if you have to use a mantra, or if you're counting your pedal strokes, this is hard for everybody. And at the end of the day, if you find a way to get through it, kudos to you, man, and you're just going to get better. So yeah, start where you are, just meet yourself where you are, commit to training. This as a skill and getting better with it. And you absolutely will. I swear this is the last thing for me. Uh, <laughs> you just hit on such a big trigger point for me. Just because something hurts doesn't mean that it's making you faster. 
And I see mm -hmm. athletes misunderstand that so much. They equate pain with progress. It's not at all. There's nothing related to that. So you making your training more miserable, like, yeah, I did it with no fan. What is the point? <laughs> Only hurting yourself more. Or like, I did this fasted. Okay, so you starved yourself and put yourself in a hole for something that's coming up. Like instead, give yourself as much tailwind as you can. It's only going to help. Like, right. like quality just of the work because, goes up. Yes, you can absorb more of the work, you can tolerate more later on, but even then you're gonna get more from the from what you're currently doing. But just because something hurts or is miserable, it is not making you faster. It needs to be productive. And it needs to be measured and it needs to be something. And when I say measured, I mean, you know, a, a, a strategic and scientific approach is what I mean with that. So, um, yeah, don't just go searching for ways to make yourself hurt more. That's ridiculous. Go for searching for ways to make yourself faster. That's a lot more productive toward meeting your goals, whatever it might be. So, okay. That covers it for this week. We had some questions we didn't get to. We'll probably put them in to maybe in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we'll have Nate back in a good state at that point and coach Chad back as well. Uh, so thanks so much, everybody for listening. This has been a great episode. Ivy, thanks for coming on. So cool great to have you, you, Ivy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hopefully we can have more Ivy on the podcast. It'll be great. Uh, and and uh, also if you're listening to this now, once again, rate the podcast, share it with your friends. It's probably one of the biggest things you can do to help and go to trainerroad.com, check out plan builder, check out the strength training calculator, check out everything that's on there and please send your friends there. That's how, I mean, that is absolutely the best way you can help the podcast. So go to trainerroad.com. We'll talk to you next week with special guest Sika Henry. Thanks everybody. Bye everyone. Bye guys.